Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 113 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor, show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dane, joined as always by the co-host, Matt Feuerstein. And Matt, today we have a first-time guest, and, uh, you know, I always try and compile all the plugs for, for the, all those projects that this person's been involved with whenever we have a guest on. And, man, you can go on forever because, obviously... This person, the first thing you think about our guest today is the Death Valley Driver video review, which, you know, with the untimely passing of Dean Rasmussen a few episodes ago, we talked about how important that was, that place was to the wrestling scene. And then they went on to have another very entertaining blog, uh, Segunda Caeda, which is still, I believe, going. Then they went on to write for The Ringer, which is the big uh Mama Jamma wrestling, I mean, not wrestling site, but sports site. And then on top of that, if you wanted this guest, you thought, oh, I like their websites, but well, what if I want them in a book or a podcast form? Well, the person went and he wrote a dang book, Way of the Blade, a book all about wrestling's great bloody matches. And then he did a whole companion podcast that ran for quite a while where he had guests on to talk about bloody matches. If you want to talk about a guest spread on a podcast, might be the only wrestling podcast that can count among its guests both Tony Khan, Julius Smokes, and the Necro Butcher, and Dustin Rhodes. So, yeah, um, this is definitely a step down for him, but we thank him for slumming it with us. Phil Schneider, thank you for being on the show today. I appreciate it, guys. I'm a ROH dude, so I, I thought uh, it would be fun to come on and talk about this promotion. I wanted to try to find a show I'd been to because I'd been to a fair number of them. And honestly, I can't remember if I've been to this show because this is what happens when you get old. Because it feels like I, I mean, it was like Edison. I went to a bunch of the Edison shows. It feels like I'd want to go to this show. So why wouldn't I be there? But rewatching it, I did not remember uh, whether I was there or not. I still might have been. I didn't see myself in the audience. Uh, but I'm excited to talk about this with you guys. This is fun to revisit this era. Yeah, it's it's a fun contrast on this show because Matt and a lot of our guests are like Northeast people. So they'll be like, yeah, I've seen, you know, Matt was to a million ROH shows of this era where I'm Northwest Canadian. So like I have never been to an ROH show and I will remember like minute details from like the indie wrestling show I attended when I was 14, where anyone like you that's had it so good, it's like you just randomly forget shows that would have been like lifetime memories for me. You feast and famine on this podcast, but. I, I, oh, actually, guys, I, I, actually, I actually did see myself in the crowd on this show, which is always, ex- <laughs> always extremely embarrassing. You remember running across me at the show? Was I at the show, Matt? You remember uh, saying, "Oh, I remember chatting with Phil." I mean, mm, I, you know, I don't think we've ever met, but we might have met. You no, know? no, <laughs> no, no, a bunch of times. No, but I will say this: Yeah, I don't think we met, but there was a time. I mean, this is maybe embarrassing to admit that. I remember it was a, a show at the same venue in Edison in uh, in 2007, and I remember like standing in the like in the back area, and I was positive that like you and Rob Naylor were both standing there as part of the same crew. Like I heard your voices, and I had heard you on podcast before, and I'm like pretty sure that's Phil Snyder and Rob Naylor, but I was too shy to say anything. I mean, I, I certainly would hang out with Rob if we were at the same shows. Like, you know, that, that, that guy, uh, Rob's a buddy of mine. And if we were at the same show, I would find Rob and we'd bullshit. So it is certainly possible we were at a show 2007. Again, I mean, I clearly, as we've established, don't have a great memory for which shows I went to. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, after watching this again, I wasn't at this show. Yeah, but I, I definitely was at least – Danielson and Joe, they wrestled – 
during Joe's reign, right? Yeah, they, they, think- yeah, they wrestled in Philly during Joe's reign in a, I'd say, a much more celebrated match than the one that was on this show. I, I can tell you, Phil, that I think you're probably not at this show because I have a quote later on in the show from you reviewing the main event in a Death LHR video review, and you were saying this is the first Ring of Honor of, real, of the Brian Danielson heel run that I've seen. So it sounded definitely like you were – you didn't review the whole show. It sounded like you were watching this on a DVD. On, okay. a, on a DVD, Great. you say. Wonderful. I'm excited to, I'm excited to, to hear what I thought of the show uh, when I watched it uh, – <laughs> Around the same time it happened. That's good to know. I, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I love doing that. I think run was maybe a year or two before. I would go to a lot of the 2004, 2005 era ROH shows. And maybe at this point, not as many, although I'm not sure what in my life would at, at in 2006 would have stopped me from going to it. But, you know, like I, like I said, I have a lot of head. I've had a lot of head trauma. Guys, okay. I, I played football and rugby and then I boxed for a while. I just beat the shit out of my brain. And so, so you know, like I think as I'm getting older now, you start to realize that like while my memory for facts is really good, like actual experiences in my life, not great, which bugs my wife. Because also <laughs> say, do we do that? Just like, yes, we were at this thing. We talked to these people. You met this person five or six times before. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. Well, you have a good excuse. I'm just an idiot, so I can't remember certain yeah, things. Um, <laughs> I put my keys in the fridge yesterday, so I don't know what my excuse I, I, I've never competed in any strenuous uh, activity that would involve repeated concussive blows to the head. But At least you, at least you <laughs> didn't lose the keys while they were currently in your hand, which is what <laughs> tends to be what happens to me. Um, but like as, as a segue, Trevor, um, because uh, based on all that memory stuff, uh, as promised on the last episode, I did turn 40 between the last episode and this episode. So uh, my memory is going to get all that much worse. Um, but I will say this, Trevor, and I showed this to you. Um, my friends, as a surprise 40th birthday gift, got me a cameo from Bret Hart. And before the before I saw this video, if I had known they were going to do that, I would have said, please don't do that. That's really embarrassing. That's so cheesy. But then I have to admit, I really, really, really loved it. It was great. Um, so uh Bret Hart does a good job at cameos. Although he did forget to mention, like, four of the guys that chipped in. Just mentioned the one that filled out the the form or something. But a very, very fun experience. Um, also, probably kind of an embarrassing thing to get as a 40-year-old because you think <laughs> cameos are probably for, you know, fun for, like, young people. Like, oh, my favorite celebrity. But you know what? Um, I'm extremely immature, so it worked for me. Well, I was- I was working on a ringer piece that didn't is still sitting on an editor's desk at some point. I may never run, but about uh, champagne, and I had champagne record like a greeting to <laughs> uh, to D. You know when he was in the hospital about like I was sort of a cameo, but like didn't pay for it. But he was like gave he did the entire sh- famous champagne uh, uh, riff. And then did like kind of a get well soon friend kind of thing. A little sweet memory, but I was like, oh man, I bet you would get a kick out of champagne doing the whole like, you know, drove through hell in a, you know, in gasoline drawers in a fur coat (laughs) uh, stick for him. That's awesome. Matt, the other, uh, 
couple things I want to mention quickly on that. I, I just, and then we'll get to the show. Just a couple of funny notes. First off, we mentioned this, we were talking this privately, but when you showed me that Bret Hart cameo, this is, I thought it was kind of funny. Like it was very touching, you know, Brett's trying to riff and he's like, you know, knowing it's your, it's a request for a 40th birthday. Congratulations. He's like, you know, 40 is when I really, everything came together for me. I, you know, I had my best matches after I turned 40 and I, I was telling you, Matt, like, that's really nice. But when you think about like what happened to Bret Hart in his forties, like, I mean, if, yeah, if I, I wasn't that, Gonna, I wasn't going to say it, but yeah, this was. If you actually look back, Bret Hart, look back. I'm not going to say it, but look at the year Bret Hart turned 40. That's all I'll say. I don't want to rub anything in, but yeah, the, 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 there's some there's some negative portents if you want to take the extrapolate the Bret Hart story to your own approaching middle age. But um, and the other thing was you you know I don't check cameo very often, but you checking that looking at sending me that link to the cameo, sent me down like a cameo rabbit hole. And I, I became obsessed with, um, like I didn't realize cameo now just gives you like the average star review from customers, but it tells you the average length of this person's cameos. And so like Bret Hart was like 90 seconds and you know, a lot of people. And so I got obsessed with seeing like how short someone's average cameo was. And it was like, I could find like a 23 second. I, I think it's like, um, uh, Brian Cox. If you look up his cameo, he does like an average, I don't know, like a 30 second cameo. And he looks so, and he charges more than almost anyone. And he looks absolutely miserable doing it. it it's a, it's great viewing. But then on the other end of the spectrum, I saw Mick Foley. His average length is like three and a half minutes or something crazy. And I watched like one of his cameos. He was playing music. He brought out like costumes to wear. He was doing like post production. Like I was like, like Mick Foley is like a super worker in the realm of cameos, but um, I can't believe that Brian Cox currently is on cameo. Like as a big of a yeah, star it, that he is, that's amazing. Yeah, thirty seconds, you, thirty seconds, crabby. I don't still probably worth it. I mean, there's but, a, the SAG afters on strike, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh yes, now well now I mean, they are as of as of yesterday. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's got a you know I'm sure these you're gonna have a lot more people on cameo. How many people do we think were on cameo? How many cameos are available for people that were on this show? What do you think? Oh, man. <sighs> well, Brian Danielson's not. I could say that because I've looked. Um, but, man, I, I, you know you know who would be – Homicide would be a great cameo. Do we think Homicide's on cameo? Should, should I look it up? Julia Smoke should be a, would be a tremendous cameo. Oh, yeah. You'd love him just to read the phone book, like, with his inflections and his – yeah, that would be a great – I mean, when I had him on Way of the Blade, it was the most disorganized of all of those podcasts, for sure. But I <laughs> had a real like, – you know, but I definitely got a real kick out of, out of just, you know, like, shooting the shit with him for, for, uh, for 45 minutes, even if I didn't, like, really – I don't know how much we really talked about the match. I'm not really sure how much we were able to get out of him informationally but it was definitely a he's a guy that i don't understand why uh is not currently in roh when they brought back prince donna which is awesome also it feels like a useful guy to you know the tony contra call up and throw on these tapings right yeah like he's one of those people that you you just like there is no one that can replicate what he does i mean there's no one out there so but uh yeah, we should I guess we should get to the show. That brings us to the show we're covering today. Fight of the Century took place August fifth, two thousand six, at the Inmon Sports Complex in Edison, New Jersey, from a report crowd of eight hundred fans. That would have been like a hundred and fifty fan increase over the last show they ran there, Ring of Homicide. Um 
We open with the incredibly rare for Ring of Honor outdoor overview ha- headshot, where uh, presumably they did it from the roof of the building. So very rare that Ring of Honor does anything remotely ambitious with like these kinds of things. So even th- that's how starved we are. It's like, oh, that's that's different. We get it's just a shot of the line outside the building to get into the crowd tonight. Yeah, you and know, it's, it's not uh, like it's not like it's some like unusual or impressive line either. It's just no, like no. there's always a little line before the doors open, and you saw maybe like. 25 people on this line like it's it's it didn't i don't understand what they thought they were proofing with that and i think it was kind of funny but you're right it is so rare for them to even stand on a roof to make a shot that i it was it was still novel it made the show feel marginally special yeah and they got the on-screen caption that tells us they are lined up to witness the fight of the century so they were really this wasn't one of those ring of marshals where they named the show like afterwards and they asked like the fans or shane Hagler, and like could you come up with a name for this this was like they had been hyping this for a few shows i think of like you know like the fight of the century has been signed and so yeah they were really hyping this big um we then go to Samoa Joe backstage. Joe says, there's no more words. Sneak attacks, backstabbing a trickery. Tonight's just him and Brian Danielson. Joe puts over Brian as a great wrestler, but says, when it comes to who people look to as the defining champion ROH, they always look to him. They look to Joe. Joe says, after tonight, Brian will be 15 pounds lighter and looking at the new Ring of Honor champion. And then we go to Brian Danielson backstage in a separate promo where he is wearing a shirt that says all natural on it. I always love Brian Danielson's choice of shirts. Um, Brian says he has no doubt that Joe is in the best shape of his life, but Brian says he's also in the best shape of his life. He says, I can do a thousand squats in my sleep. I can hold a bridge for over 20 minutes. Just tonight, I'm going to prove to everyone I'm the best wrestler in the world. So just two very short little promos to uh, hype up the main event. The most noteworthy thing to me is of that promo was just how for how many years Brian Danielson has just loved his neck bridges like to the point where even now he'll like post pictures of him or Wheeler Yuta neck bridging on top of a mountain or something just he's been yeah. bragging about those bridges for now getting close to 20 years yeah so i yeah. interviewed Brian Danielson for GQ recently i don't know if it's going to run the thing about being a like a quasi-professional writer right now is you write so many things. It's like, well, this might run, this might never run. But he taught it was it was for the real life diet um thing that they do for GQ. So it was all about like his workout and his diet. And apparently he wakes up at like five in the morning to work out. Like, That's not surprising, like, but yeah. <laughs> but he described to me that he felt he feels like he was um born to power squat was one of the quotes <laughs> of the thing. <laughs> I mean, he was the best at was that. Um uh but uh yeah so he's still a lunatic complete lunatic was yeah. the uh the gist I got from chatting with him about his workout and diet routine. Well whether uh-huh. that whether that interview ever runs, we as far as Danielson shirts, we definitely need a born to power squat t shirt yeah. <laughs> um, branded with Brian Danielson. He always seems like one of those guys that just like he he will discover he likes something and then it just he goes insane because I think you really started to see like the Brian Danielson weightlifting content when he started you know like the uh, the pers- perspective brother in law face with John Cena where he's like oh turns out I really like lifting and you just saw him like get really into stuff like that or but uh, that brings us to the opening match. Colt Cabana defeats Sal Renaro, scored to the ring by Jimmy Raven Prince Nana, via submission in 7 minutes, 33 seconds, when he made him tap out to the Billy Goats curse. Uh, Matt, you know, we're continuing this run of Sal Renaro being like, 
a complete job after being a tag team champion. What'd you think about this as an opener? Yeah, and I, I appreciate Sal the, was the tag team champion. Yeah, and Tony Sourdaro in ROH at all. Like when I saw him, I was like, oh shit! I didn't realize Sourdaro ever worked Wild Side. He was for, a tag champion for the last Jesus. three yes. for the last three months of 2005. He was the tag team champion with Tony Mamaluke. So yeah, like months. Wow! Yeah, he won. He won. He won it on the. So he won it on the same show as Joe versus Kobashi for that that reference. So that might be why that was forgotten, since uh, there were some other things on that show that took everyone's attention. Um, yeah. So to give a little background, Phil, like yeah, like they, they were they they uh, brought Cell back when he hadn't been around, and neither had Mamaluke. They just threw them together as like random team that wins the tag team titles and a massive upset on their first night. They ran for like Matt said a few months. They didn't really set the world on fire. They dropped the titles to Aries and uh, Strong. And then, like, all of a sudden, they, like, bring Sal back as basically, like, Jimmy Rave's, like, abused henchman. And now he is, like, the lowest person on the totem pole after. So it's, like, a complete shift of everything with him at this point in his career. God, it was great to see Jimmy Rave. That was my, yeah. that was my really only thought about this match. It was, like, man, a, what, a, what a delightful... Uh, performer he was and what a what a great uh act he was with nada just him taking bumps for the uh toilet paper and that's like, yeah, man and that's Jimmy what i, Rave. That's what I like cool. about this match is the is that they got the shtick in like you know because normally it's a tag team match so rave gets to like push sal around slap sal you know nana slap sal so they still have them at ringside usually daisy hayes is there too as part of the act but she wasn't on this one but so like the, the embassy shtick was the part that I enjoyed, uh, and there was one point where uh, Colt called Nana a stupid idiot, which like wow, Chris Jericho, you really ripped him off with that. Um, but um, I'd say on the Colt end of things, you know, having watched every you know every Colt Cabana ROH match at this point, this felt like I don't know, this felt like the least inspired version of Colt Cabana, just the most basic comedy stuff that he does. You know, he really didn't add all that much, um, but. Uh, I I just like this version of the embassy. There's, I mean, I like every version of the embassy, honestly, that we've seen so far. But so that they really carried their end of things. But overall, I thought this was fairly forgettable. Although I wouldn't say there was anything particularly wrong with it. The crowd liked it as an opener, so it did its purpose. It was it was a perfect opener for this show, which is going to have a lot of a lot of heavy lifting pro wrestling on it, right? Like yeah. you're going to have so you have these guys. They got Cabana's going to do some. Ripped off Johnny Saints spots. Nana's going to do his thing. You know, uh, Renaro, I mean, Renaro was somebody forgettable in this, but I thought this was like the kind of thing you want in a, as an opener of a show that's going to have a lot of like, you know, be, I mean, a lot of long pro wrestling, pro wrestling matches. Some, some dumb six minute stuff that the crowd's going to get into as they're shuffling in for the seats. Uh, you know, I, I thought it was very effective for what they were trying to do. Yeah, I, I thought this was pre perfectly reasonable comedy. This felt like the Sal Renaro, all the Sal Renaro spots we would get in every recent Sal and Rave tag team in this era, match in this era, and they just took out all like the more, the, the serious wrestling they'd get to in the second half of the match. It was just like, let's just do the Sal character work and comedy stuff. And obviously, Colt is a guy who can just do a, you know, six to eight minute comedy spot match. You know, Sal in being his, the complete, In his sleep, basically. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, I, I, I particularly, you know, it's all spots again, if we've been following the recent shows that you've seen before, except I did really think it was acute where, uh, you know, Sal gets thrown to the, goes to the outside, gets slapped by Jimmy Rave, gets pumped up from the slap, runs back in the ring, charges Colt. Colt dodges. He falls out. Sal falls to the other side of the ring where Nana is. Nana slaps him. So I thought that that was a cute thing. I, I think the one thing that really bummed me out watching this match though was this is you know the this is a classic wrestling you know gimmick where it's hey you know the uh, the abused flat lunky who you know eventually rises you know gets some nerve and st- stands up and it almost always works in wrestling if you do it even reasonably well and i know that was you know rave's idea with this and yet it's kind of d- depressing watching this because i i looked it up just to make sure sal renar only works two more weekends in ring of honor after this and like as in this era and the way this angle is written off is basically just at the end of one show rave is just like and i think i'm gonna go it alone and then you don't see rest again so there's never any like this angle doesn't even get to the middle stages that they've been doing for a couple months now it's just this is basically the end for, yeah, for a it, while. But. It's, fun, it's funny because at this point, the um, the uh, Renaro uh, uh, and Rave team has only really been around for like what three weeks. We just you know we just watch one show every three weeks, so it feels like it, it's been going on for months. Yeah. But from our timeline, but it's super short lived. And uh, that brings us to the second match: the Ring of Honor Top of the Class Trophy Title Match: Shane Hagedorn. Defends the trophy when he defeats Bobby Dempsey via ref stoppage in 10 seconds when Dempsey was unresponsive in a bulldog choke. Uh, Bobby comes out fired up. He's screaming, give me my goddamn trophy. Time to get my trophy. Come on, baby. And then um, someone, presumably staff, comes out just behind Hagedorn as he starts to make his entrance. They couldn't even wait 10 seconds to give him his moment. I thought that is such a Ring of Honor student move. You know, there's a there's a Bobby Dempsey chant, and then the entire match, Hagedorn pulls a foreign object for his trunks. He hits Bobby with it as the ref turns to put away the top of the class trophy, then immediately puts him, you know, the knocked out Dempsey in the submission for the ref stoppage. Uh, this is one of those things that oh, I, I wouldn't say get a kick out. That's the wrong thing. But like, it's always crazy to me when you see a match like this where there is one spot and Bobby Dempsey is like bleeding from the nose or mouth. <laughs> like poor guy. There's, there's one spot and he's busted open. Um, and yeah, the only blood on the show, right? I, th- yeah, I think I, I, the only other blood that I remember is somebody had their mouth busted a little bit. I, maybe it was Joe. I don't remember exactly, but that was it. This is definitely the only um, major blood on the show. Guys, guys brought in the author of Way of the Blade on a completely show. I'm certainly not afraid to have blood on ROH shows. I definitely remember. <laughs> Tons of bloody live, tons of bloody matches. It yeah. was weird. I thought about this. I mean, I vaguely remember these guys. Hagerdorn, I think, is doing a book. On yeah, ROH yeah, he's doing a book. He or, also uh, he also has an ROH podcast too. That that we've yeah. uh, we, and he's we working had some for cross- AEW we, right now. So. Yeah, we've had some crossover with their podcasts. But yeah, he's he's writing. He's literally writing the book on ROH, uh, which is which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah from coming out from uh, Hybrid Shoot, same people who put out yeah. my book and. And, and future books of mine. So, shout out Shane Hagerorn, a fellow uh, uh, fellow author. Um, but it's weird that ROH basically had no successful students 
Like, is that right? I mean, who, the Red Titus would be the most successful one. Red, right? like, Red, is, def- Red is definitely the highest profile in terms of like his his wrestling career as as far as like he's still wrestling and like was considered like a a nor- like a major part of the roster. I mean, Shane had a run for a little while as a major character on the show. He was with the Kings of Wrestling. He was in some big matches. But yeah, it was ma- mainly Rhett was the one. The you know, the prodigy of the first class was Davey Andrews and and Shane talks about how like nobody has any idea what happened to him. Like he left wrestling and like no one can find him. Yeah, Shane yeah, on I mean, his podcast will give out a call like if you know what happened to Davey Andrews, like please get in contact with us. But if you think of something just like the doghouse, how many successful students came from that or AIW school or APW, I mean, just like all of these other wrestling schools, you know, you can list off the, the guys who had pretty big careers or Chikara. I mean, think about the number of Chikara graduates who are in ROH or in AEW right now. And then it's like ROH is like the best you get is Rhett Titus, who had like, you know, I don't know, a C plus indie career. It's the uh, moment it, yeah, it says, around ROH TV, I guess. It says uh, now, something so like about it, how um, they cultivated their, their students. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I'm sure you could point to, like, some fatal flaw in that school that is why those guys didn't get to really succeed at the level that a lot of other schools did. But I'm not expert enough to know what that flaw exactly is. <laughs> well, they brought those guys up early, and a lot of those guys, I mean, the matches like this is par for the course. Like, this is, you're lucky if you get on the show, and if you do get on the, I mean, even if you're not on the show, if you're on the pre-show, you're probably getting, like, a four-minute match, if that, like, how many, the the, the students are always used as uh, jobber, you know, fodder, and it's also funny where, you know, Ring of Honor was always, you know, people have this reputation of it's the, you know, the big, serious, you know, ultra meat and potatoes wrestling thing. And it's funny, I always thought where, you know, the students, you would assume, oh, they're being taught by CM Punk and then Brian Danielson and Austin Aries, all these guys. And like every student that caught on at all, like Hagedorn, um, Bobby Dempsey, Rhett Titus, uh, Grizzly Redwood eventually, you know, like even Pele Primo, it was all because of character work. Like th- that's what it, it, the students that got over, it was never from the matches. It was from like, oh, if these guys are showing personality. If they have a fun gimmick, you know, things like that. So it was like the complete polar opposite of what you think the school would produce. But yeah, you could, I mean, I'm sure everyone that was there, you could do like a documentary about their experiences coming up through the school there. Um, so after the match, Adam Pierce enters the ring with a mic. He asks the crowd to give Shane a Hagedorn a round of applause. They give him booze. Uh, Pierce congratulates Hagedorn on winning the fastest ROH match of all time. The crowd chants for homicide. Pierce says the promise Hagedorn's match went so quick that he now has to top to fill the segment. Um, Hagedorn says the crowd doesn't deserve to hear Pierce. He gets the mic. The crowd chants shut the fuck up. Shane sucks up to Pierce. As the crowd drowns him out, Shane then shouts, respect me. I have a trophy, which I always loved that whenever Shane just like clung to the trophy like that is his entire identity. Uh, Pierce tells Shane he likes what he's doing, and if he keeps working, maybe one day Shane can be lieutenant commissioner just like him. He sends Shane off and then talks about the night before, saw the ring of honor return of the great Steve Carino. Pierce then calls BJ Whitmer out to the ring and even holds the ropes open for him when he enters. Pierce says after uh, Homicide attacked him last night, he saw BJ standing over him doing nothing. He says, he goes over how during the Ring of Honor CZW feud, they fought together. Pierce says they didn't do it for the fans. They did it for Jim Cornette. Then he says, you know, we drove to the building tonight, me and you, BJ, and you, we maybe said a half dozen words to each other in the entire drive. Pierce want, needs to know if BJ will do Cornette's bidding, follow his orders to destroy Homicide. Is he with Pierce or against him? 
BJ tries to play the middle. He says, you know, I respect you, Adam, but I also respect Homicide for standing up for Ring of Honor. He continues, but Steve Creel sneaks up from behind, attacks him. Creel says, Homicide is a scared piece of garbage. Pierce stops Creel from attacking Whitmer Moore, saying BJ will come around. He then tells Homicide to find a tag partner for tonight. So setting up a very obvious partner for the match later. This was still early enough in the feud that the crowd was like interested in where this was all going. Cause I feel like, you know, maybe it was the match quality or just dragged on for too long, but I feel like all the stuff with homicide and Pierce kind of ended up dragging on and, and dying a bit with the crowds as the year went on until we finally got to that, uh, to the homicide and Danielson match that everyone was really waiting for. Yeah, I'm really interested to like kind of revisit this feud because we just went over that quote from Gabe MySpace of, of all places a few shows ago where he talked about like it looking back being like the homicide like Pierce Cornette feud did really turn out the way I thought it would. And I don't know why I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to like maybe as we keep watching these segments because yeah, on paper, I, I remember me and a lot of people, we were super excited the idea of more homicide and Steve Carino like – yeah. Fuck yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Phil, I know from Segunda Caída. I mean, I know you are huge on the, uh, I mean, that Carino from Bitter, that Carino 2003 uh, homicide match from Bitter Friends, Different Enemies. I mean, that is just an unbelievable, one of the yeah, better matches in the company history. Arguably the best match in RH history. I, I think I was at that one live, and that's one of my favorite five or six long. Five matches I've ever been. You know, well, the match um, the match they end up having in two thousand six is not on that level, and I think you know that's part of the problem too. But yeah, um, we'll, we'll talk about the we'll talk about that tag when we get to it too. Yeah. It, it, it did get a kind of kick out of the, the sections that they had against each other, and was <laughs> boy, which was just smash. Yeah, not a giant either Adam Pierce or B J Whipper guy. So it's like. <laughs> kind of this was like I was really, I really appreciated the parts of that match where they just focused the camera only on. Yeah. Uh, next, we get the non-title four-corner survival match. Nigel McGuinness defeats uh, Christopher Daniels, Claudio Castagnoli, and Jay Lethal in 11 minutes 49 seconds when he pinned Castagnoli after the rebound lariat. This was right at the end, Phil, of a. Uh, Nigel McGuinness's whole like pure champion run where the show after this, he unifies the belts with Danielson and kind of a different chapter of his career. So this was kind of the end of like mid card heel Nigel, although he had already phased out quite a bit of that out by this point. Uh, what do you think about this match? I'm, I'm, through the years, I'm generally kind of sick to death of four ways because I've seen a million Ring of Honor four ways like this. But uh, I'm wondering what you think as a guy that hasn't watched probably revisit a lot of this stuff. Okay. That's kind of my thought of it. it was fine, you know. I, I've I I haven't watched a lot of Nigel in a long time, and I did appreciate the rebound there is really stupid, but he really does like glare at the fuck out of the guys when he hits it. So I was like, oh man, I remember Nigel really would clothesline the shit out of somebody. So I enjoyed that, and you know, Claudio's fun, and you know, as a guy, I mean, I don't know, it was very forgettable. Probably the least like memorable in some ways match on this show. In the sense of like yeah. when you say, okay, I remember about this match outside of that last lariat. Uh, I guess Claudio and Daniels are feuding. I guess in the sense I got, I, I don't, I didn't remember the Claudio Daniels feud at all, but that would seem to be the focus of this. Um, yeah, you could yeah, forgive him. Was, I guess like the, out of all the other ones, even like the first two matches, there was like some things I felt like I could say about it. Or is it this match? It was just kind of like, ah, oh, it was a really nice clothesline. 
<laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. The only story of all of this was this. What they did a whole angle at the hundredth show where you know Christopher Daniels never shook hands in Ring of Honor. He chose Claudio to be the first guy, and of course, with the main event that night, that was the night Claudio turned on Ring of Honor to join CZW. So they had kind of teased right after that, like, oh, you're going to get a Claudio Daniels feud or at least a match down the line. They never really pick up on it. This is months later. And, uh, or at least weeks later, and it's, uh, a bunch of shows later. And this is like the first time Daniels and Claudio are in the ring since together since that angle. So that's why Daniels really kind of is, is going after Claudio in, in this match. But, um, yeah, I thought this was a standard. It, it was a reasonably by the standards of the random ass Ring of Honor four corner matches. I thought this was fairly enjoyable. You know, they work the match like they, do are feuding and really don't like each other. You know, um, Daniels jumps on immediately to try and kill him. Claudio builds out the earliest opportunity, only tags in against Daniels. He has the advantage on the very classic basic heel psychology. Even if there's even a nice bit where Claudio spits on Alice in danger, and then she gets revenge later by breaking up a Claudio suplex by throwing water on him. So, although the cameras don't do a great job catching that, uh, the rest of the four way falls pretty standard ring of honor template. It's, for four ways it's fairly slow in the first half a lot of mat wrestling that i enjoyed decently enough and then the second half kind of kicks into a a higher gear but the one thing i i kind of like about this four-way or at least i'll say it amuses me is it does the thing we've seen in the four ways occasionally i always love this where wrestlers who don't want to work a certain match so they make the match the kind of match they wish they would want we've seen this a few times in a four-way where you know you know what? I'm in a four way, but I would much rather just work a rig- regular tag. So at one point, you just see Daniels decide, I'm, you know, there are two phases in this match. There are two heels in this pa- match. I'm going to be face in peril. You know, let the two heels kind of tag it out and control me for a while. And then I'll make a hot tag to Jay Lethal. And we've seen that a few four ways where guys just decide, eh, let's just turn this into a tag match because you know what? That's, that, that's more, e- that's easier to do and to do, have kind of like a big story beat like that. But, um, and yeah, this is also Jay Lethal's final Ring of Honor match until 2011. So another guy that's getting, uh, you know, he hadn't really been a regular in at this point, but another guy who's kind of saying goodbye here. Matt, what do you think? Yeah, Lethal's presence in ROH at all at this point really feels like sort of makeshift, like he's filling in for people, basically, um, kind of doing them a favor and, you know, they're in his home home turf. So I guess that's yeah. why he's able to do the shows. Um I thought this was I'm most people's first ever pro wrestling match. Um, in, in the kind of you know what's the band you saw before they got big moment. Yeah, well, uh, I think his first ever match is a JPW show. He worked a guy named Rain Child, um, and uh, it was pretty good. As I remember watching, I was like, "Wow, this is, these guys are really debuting. These guys are you know these guys these guys are pretty good." They get, gave them some the the difference, I guess, between your JPW rookies and your ROH rookies, right? Is these guys got a chance to have have like a showcase match? Um, but yeah, that's really my only Jay thoughts about Jay Lethal as a wrestler. Yeah, Jay Lethal was Jay Lethal was at the was end like, of oh, his. Jay was at the end of his first ROH run here, and he was still only like 21 years old at this point. So he was, yeah, he was pretty good, you know, very young. Um, but um, this match, you know, I, I pointed this out to Trevor. It's, I think, the only four-way that we've seen. And we've seen a lot of four-ways where every single guy in the match is, as of 2023, currently under AEW contract. And three of them have wrestled on AEW and ROH TV 
in this calendar year. And I guess, you know, Trevor, you'd know better than me, like the rumors about Nigel. I don't know. Do you, do you think it's likely that he'll end up wrestling again? Uh, I don't know. If you had to predict? I mean, I, I think at this point, the way they kept teasing it, the way Daniels has been going after him in press conference, I think, like, Nigel was even, like, joking about, oh, you know, I was go- supposed to go to wrestle Danielson, but he broke his – you know, broke his arm. Like, like, like they're certainly playing around with it. And I think, again, we talked about on a recent show, like if Nigel is ever going to have one more match at a giant, you know, packed Wembley stadium, I mean, you're, you're never going to get a better opportunity to have one more match than this. So I, I would be at this point, I would be shocked if he doesn't have one more match. Cause otherwise I think you just come out and immediately flat denied. I don't know why you would get people's hopes up with all these little teases they've been doing. Yeah, it's, so, a weird, it's a weird, ma- it's a weird masturbatory match to have on a big show like that, though. In the sense that you know, like Danielson's a big star in that promotion, and having yeah. like a match, you know, a match with an announcer playing off some feud from seventeen years ago uh, would it, be a weird for him to be where he theoretically, his arm heals in time, he should be in a big main event. Um, it, it's funny, like I agree. I I feel like in in like in, like the, the Ring of Our family is like I just want I just want to see it because it be great for my nostalgia but like it's funny what does and doesn't catch like maybe pass on to people because i was shocked on like the second collision in that eight-man tag or or the first i mean no the first collision it was the six-man where joe and and punk square off the crowd went ape shit for it like just them standing off and i was like there were you know how many people watched that at the time you know and i realized that you know joe punk has a probably a little more cachet than Nigel Danielson does. But I was shocked even that, you know, a crowd of like 3000 people, you know, up in Canada were going nuts for something again, that, you know, the entire history of that was early ring of honor that, you know, wasn't that big of a company, but it was smaller than ring of honor is at this point. Yeah. But you know, what's weird about it is like, you know, a lot of this ROH stuff, it's, it's kind of a wonder to me how, it's grown in kind of legend and, and lore over the past, you know, whatever, you know, 20 to 18 years. And at least with the matches like Joe and Punk and Danielson and Nigel, those matches are available to watch on YouTube. But like when it comes to something like the final countdown, uh, if you watch any of those YouTube videos, that's cut out. It's not available on Honor Club or anything. How do so many people know about and get excited for Danielson coming out to the final countdown? Very few people watched Taro H when he was coming out to that music. And you had whole arenas of people singing along and going crazy when the when the music started. I, I really don't understand how that sort of thing happens. You know, you get these shows like that where like a show, a TV show or a movie or whatever is not watched by that many people when it's new. And then it just kind of grows and grows and becomes a cult favorite over many years. But at least, you know, with that, there's streaming, there's ways people can watch it. I, I have no idea how the final countdown became so legendary to people that have, I'm sure, never seen Brian Danielson come out to that music. Yeah, and even like like when Punk did that throwback thing in AEW where he came out to AFI and did the ring jacket, like people like you and me, Matt, were going crazy over the callback. The crowd largely, got, I got the impression, was like, "What? Like, where's cult of personality?" So it's, it's, it is interesting again, like what things kind of catch on from this this from Ring of Honor in this era, and what things like maybe it's just a market thing, even that just completely fly over people's heads and go, "Why is Punk like?" Why isn't he doing his, his normal music? Yeah. Yeah, Forbidden Door is your most hardcore 
audience, though, right? Too. Yeah. But but I have to, I have to I have to think that like if he came out to that in Wembley or like Grand Slam, it would get a similarly big reaction. I guess those are also like some of the most hardcore audiences too, though. Yeah. Um, as far as as far as the match, um, I. I thought it was mostly formula. I did think that the final sequence was a little bit peppier than normal and was pretty fun. You know, the part yeah. where, um, uh, you know, Daniels hits a series of clotheslines on Claudio, then he hits the STO, and then the Death Valley driver on Nigel, and then he goes for the best moonsault ever, and Claudio moves, Danielson lands on his feet, gets super kicked by Nigel, then Lethal does that backflip kick, which I really like. That's sort of like a, something he's been doing more in these later ROH appearances. And then Claudio hits the, you know, he throws him up, hits the European uppercut, and then, you know, Daniels does the, the flatliner thing, and then all four are down, and the crowd goes crazy. I, I, you know, I told you that I'm kind of a mark for spots like that. Um, the other thing is, um, how many matches at this point has Nigel won with the rebound lariat? I feel like this is really when he transitions from it being a mid-match move to being a finisher. Um, I don't think he's won too many matches with it. So I, I like that because that, I think that is, does become a really over finisher. And like Phil said, Nigel does, you know, lariat the crap out of people. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Nigel's interesting to watch because he really like when he starts like people forget this. We rewatching these shows when he first does the rebound for the first few shows. It's not a rebound, Larry. It's a rebound into like a schoolboy. Then he starts to realize, oh, I could do a rebound, Larry. But it's like just a random tossed off spot in the middle of matches. And then he starts to realize, like you were saying, around this point probably where it's like, oh, this is like one of the most showy spots I have, and it starts becoming the finisher. I mean, it mostly sucks, right? Like I. <laughs> <laughs> like that is a spot. That spot sucks. I, he's is the best of it, mainly because he followed the stupid rebound thing up with usually like a fucking brutal lariat. So it's like okay, well the rebound's stupid, but the lariat at least looks great. Uh, like uh, Moxley's version is terrible. It's mostly <laughs> a shitty spot. Well, Moxley's, uh, Moxley's but, version, Moxley's version, we can agree on. But Nigel does get extremely over in this ROH audience. I think he actually wins the title with it. Uh, now that I think about it, so he he really okay. gets a lot of mileage out of it. Yeah, yeah, okay, lots of, yeah. lots of things that suck popular. <laughs> I mean, I, I, for me, it's one of those spots where it's it's showing up that kind of makes up for sometimes like the. Uh, the disbelief you have to suspend, but there are occasionally times where you see the move where like, it's one of those moves where if the guy just takes an extra half second too long. It really accentuates the ridiculousness of it. Like if the guy kind of loses their grip when they're leaning back in the ropes, just for that extra second. And the guy's just standing there more while the other guy's just like, ah, let me get my balance. Just, just wait there. Like that's when it gets kind of funny. But um, the version of Nigel's Lariat that I think is the least consistent is the one where the guy is straddling the top rope because sometimes he hits that. And it's like a killer. And sometimes it's just like totally off and it kind of yeah. kills the spot a little bit. I, I feel like that that's the one where I'm like, eh, maybe you don't need to do that one so often. I also but, kind of uh, hate those spots where a guy needs to be uh, suspending himself in the ropes, waiting for somebody to hit him, like a ropes course spot, too, as a rule. Yeah. I usually think that's, those suck, too. But I like yeah, Nigel. But, I feel like I'm very hard on him, but he's a guy I remember <laughs> really enjoying. Although I honestly think this is probably the first Nigel McGinnis match I've watched in over a decade. Not a yeah, guy we, um, if we if we just wanted to refresh on Nigel, we definitely could have picked. Like he looks good here, but in some respects, but like we definitely could have picked. I mean, the next show is a better show for that. But um, next, we go backstage to find Davy Richards and Kenta. Davy Richards talks about how he came to ROH to take on the best. Calls it a dream to take on his Japanese mentor, Kenta. 
Kenta simply says, tonight, I test you. So they were leaning heavy into this. Kenta is, is David Richards, uh, uh, you know, that Kenta, I mean, David Richards was Kenta's American protege, which I like, I like that, that, that suggests that like maybe Kenta has proteges in a variety of countries, you know, lots of hoes in different area codes. But, uh, uh <laughs> we, that brings Trevor. us to, uh, <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> that brings us to the ROH World Tag Team title ultimate endurance match. Austin Aries and Roderick Strong defeat Irish Airborne of Dave Chris and Jay Christ. They also defeat Jack Evans and Matt Seidel and the Briscoes of Jay Mark Briscoe. 17 minutes, two seconds. First falls the scramble match. Irish Airborne eliminate the Briscoes when Jay Christ pin Jay after the Irish Air Raid. Second falls the tap out match. Uh, Aries and Strong eliminated the Irish Airborne where Strong made Dave Chris tap out to the stronghold. Then the final fall, as always, how you end a big different stip every fall match with that classic no stip final fall. Aries is strong on Evans and Seidel, where uh, Aries pins Seidel after a 450. Um, this is another one of those ultimate endurances matches I thought that would have been better if it wasn't an ultimate endurance match. Like uh, the ultimate endurance match the night before, it opens with a really short, really fast-paced, kind of wild, just spotty scramble portion with a big dive train where, you know, Jay Briscoe gets back body dropped to the floor. You know, Roddy even does a dive. Aries kills poor Jack Evans on that, you know, heat-seeking missile tope. And then it quickly ends in just a few minutes when the Briscoes get eliminated completely clean, kind of out of nowhere when they've been getting pushed really hard for that rematch with Aries and Strong they're getting on the next show. And the crowd's completely shocked by this, and apparently even more so that it comes no, off. I certainly didn't remember the Irish Airborne getting <laughs> fall this match. Like, holy shit, the Briscoes got beat by these clowns? I was also very shocked in my living room. I don't know, when I watched this about an hour and a half ago, I was like, fuck, they lost the... You know, the Christ, well, which is the canceled Christ? Dave is the canceled Christ. Jake? Uh, yeah, I think what so. If, yeah. What if the what if the Christ's has been canceled, right? Yes. I think it's Dave. Uh, I think yes. I saw Jake. Recently. Jake is now coming back. Yeah, he's. I saw, I saw Jake work a Lucha show in Colorado recently. I don't remember who he wrestled, but they have a weird, weird Lucha. They have a lot of Lucha in Colorado, which is where I live now. Um, and one of them is one of them is a lucha promotion that brings in lots of like also kind of weird U.S. indie guys sometimes, along with like luchadors. And I, so I think I think I think I saw Jake Chris Russell recently live. If he's the un- I saw the uncanceled Chris. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think the other one is wrestling, but yeah. And looking at like doing my research as I do for the podcast, this was like the thing. That got like the most talk after the show, other than just like the top two matches for like, oh, that was a fucking choice. So in fact, Melter would write based on live notes from fans and the observer crowd was into this match early, but when Irish Airborne eliminated the Briscoes, the crowd crapped on it because they didn't buy it and wanted Briscoes in the final. The last fall was real strong and saved it as the crowd had turned it off early. The booking rationale is that Gazapolsky didn't want Aries and Strong versus the Briscoes in the final as that, as he's saving that match. And with the second fall of this match being a submission fall, he didn't want the Briscoes tapping out. So he figured to surprise people, he'd have the shocking finish but the people weren't down with it and don't expect any ultimate endurance matches again for a while so yeah this was the match based on that reaction that kills this this step that gabe tried for quite a while to like get over by having it happen once in a while um and, and yeah it, it's really weird booking in the sense that irish airborne it kind of had felt by this point that 
that Gabe had kind of, after, like previous to this, not to mention shows earlier, the Irish Airborne had kind of had a very mid, like at best match with the Briscoes where they really underachieved where it felt like that was the, their opportunity to really kind of show something. And after that, I felt like definitely like the push, any push they were being given was kind of cough. And so it's really, yeah, shocking to see them beat the Briscoes in the first fall. And then not only that, you would think, okay, you know, I'm not the hugest Irish Airborne fan, but if you're going to give them a big fall over the Briscoes, at least have them have a good run to the end of the match, get to the final fall. Instead, the crazy thing is, immediately after they eliminate the Briscoes, the second fall, I would say the Crists, one or the other, are in for the entire length of the second fall, and I would say they get 10% of the offense, if that. Like, basically, eliminate the Briscoes, everyone gets pissed at them for eliminating the Briscoes, and then immediately transition to a fall where they basically just get ground down by the other four guys and unceremoniously eliminated to just, I guess, emphasize what a fucking fluke that first fall. Like, you got nothing out of this, and it was a decision that fans didn't like to begin with. And then the final fall, Aries and Strong, you know, and and Seidel and Jack Evans, you know, it's like a Generation Next collides after they had just broken up. You know, that probably could have sold a couple tickets if you had just ran that match here and build that and i thought you know it was very just a bunch of spots but i thought i thought it was kind of like fun shut your mind off for that i I thought like you know the first and third falls were fun in in that kind of sense second fall i I, again i think these submission falls kind of grind things down to a fault you saw both roddy and jack forget that the second fall was a submission and go for covers during that so it was just kind of an unceremonious end to the uh to the ultimate endurance uh, gimmick, but Matt, what do you think about it? Yeah, well, so, 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 go on. Yeah. Um, oh, so go ahead, Phil. Oh, uh, so I was saying, I think it's kind of interesting. My thought about this is, I, I really enjoyed this match. I think it was because I'm not watching these kind of matches with these guys in it all the time, like I would have been in 2006, or like you guys are. Yeah. Right. So it's like I just I don't know. Uh, oh, Jack Evans. I remember yeah. Jack Evans. Like Austin Aries is a guy I really liked in this period, and Roddy Strong's a guy I still kind of like. So it was like kind of fun to just watch. Like, oh, these guys doing their thing. Aries got a really great tope. You know, I hadn't yeah. seen that in a long time. That's a guy who's kind of justifiably disappeared. Uh, weirded himself out of pro wrestling, <laughs> um, and you know, and, and watch real Jack Evans really when he was like. You know, a, a real athletic marvel. You know, still, still kind of is, but obviously slowed down a ton. You know, what is this? You know, sixteen years later, seventeen years later, um, I saw him live in Mexico last year. Jack Evans on a on a big lucha show that I was it was in doing so on a work trip. So I did a, went to a bunch of lucha shows in Mexico City. Saw him then. It's like, oh, Jack Evans. This guy I used to really like and. So it was fun to see him. So I really liked this, and I but I can imagine that I would have liked it less contemporaneously and less if I was doing what the lunatic thing that you two are doing, going back <laughs> yeah. to watching every six ROH. Yeah. Like by then I mean, it was yeah. like I've seen some variation of these guys in a bunch of matches with each other and I can know I remember all the spots. But I was kinda like looking at it somewhat anew, was into it. I was like, Oh man, these these guys are better than the versions of these guys that exist now. Like it feels like I enjoyed this more than I would enjoy a Young Bucks, Lucha Brothers, um, um, Martin Brothers, somebody else four-way. If I, that ran a AEW, like the equivalent of that 
now I think I like this more than I would like that. Well, now they got to run it, do a head-to-head comparison, and find a team that will piss the crowd off when they eliminate a team that the crowd really likes in the first <laughs> fall. Um, I, I think I pl- I, all these guys still act well, not except Jay Briscoe and, uh, and, yeah. and 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 the canceled crest. I mean, you could run this now. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And I guess you know, it might be hard to get AW to book Aries, but who? Maybe not. I don't know. Um, I probably split the difference between the two of you. I um I think I liked it more than Trevor. I I will say live that Briscoe's elimination really fucked things up much worse than it seems on DVD. That was like very memorable. Just the crowd just shit on this after that. But even live that final fall did get the crowd back into it. I really enjoyed the final fall a lot. I, I thought that it was just like fun, well timed cool stuff short and you know kind of easy to digest so it was nothing that really sticks with you or anything but yeah i'm surprised they never did that two-on-two match that got a little bit more time because i think it would have been a real crowd pleaser as it was they just kind of saved this from ruining the crowd for the rest of the night but man were people pissed when the briscoes got eliminated especially since people already were kind of not feeling irish airborne and now they had reason to be really mad at them because they want i mean you know the, the briscoes were super over at this point so uh yeah that was definitely the most memorable thing in the match brother brother tag teams in wrestling right there's probably hundreds yeah the briscoes are in a top tier right yeah we, we, we talked about this after right after uh jay died it was like that you know their run is just i'd say i mean i think people are kind of revisiting it now and kind of saying you know kind of giving them their due but for a long time i would say they were kind of underrated in wrestling history yeah, and so what I would say, Phil, you have so much knowledge. I was just going to ask, like, we were, I think we were talking about this sh- on the show. I can't think of many wrestlers that were good so early and so young, and then proceeded to have such a long, consistent run from that point. Like, it's crazy to start good, basically at like seventeen, and then just keep at it for 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 two decades, like consistently, yeah, I, never really missing. I'm- it's prodigy guys, right? It's guys like Rey Mysterio and, and Santo was pretty good from the beginning. And Jun Akiyama was great from almost the start. But yeah, I mean, the Briscoes were, they were really, I mean, I was at CZW Best of the Best where they had their match against each other in like 2000, 2001 maybe. Yeah, they were like 16 and 17, I think probably. 16 and 17. You're like, what is this? These guys are nuts. Like, they totally stole that show. And there were some, you know, big-name guys on that show that they were stealing it from. Udo Guerrero was on that show. Winger was on that show. I think Akuto Daka was on that show. Like, some guys with some real careers. And those two kids just completely stole that entire show. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, they would be on the top tier. And it'd probably Aries Airport be near the bottom. Right? <laughs> like, we're you talking about, like, your brother tag teams. We're talking about the Cole Twins. I don't know where we, where would you rank them versus the Harrises? I'm trying to think of like sort of shittier brother dad. Um, <laughs> the other thing I know is that I I love this was uh this was the era where Jack Evans and Matt Seidel just came back from a big uh, Dragon Gate tour, and so they were like proudly wearing those jackets everywhere. And then I was watching that, and I was like, oh look, he's so happy. And then for some reason, Jack Evans brought a giant jug of water to the ring and like carried it with them. And then like he picks it up at the. I don't know if he was just really thirsty on this night, or but he, I, I I would love to know why Jack Evans was compelled to bring a gigantic plastic jug of water to this one match. This was not a regular Jack Evans thing, so. Um, I have a Matt Seidel uh, anecdote slash joke. 
So I saw him for the first time at a. I went to Georgia with my buddy Tom Karagasner to go see a lucha show, like that was a headline by El Hijo de Santo, L.A. La Barca, which is an incredible match that exists on tape, but is a full version. Is never never able to find anything more than like a really clipped version from Japanese TV. One of the up there with Homicide Carino was one of the best matches I've ever seen live. But we also went to a Wild Side show the night before with uh, Chris Zellner. Uh, so a true meeting of the internet wrestling uh, <laughs> dork legends. And Seidel was working that show um, well before. And I remember thinking when I was watching this, I was thinking, man, this Matt Seidel is a young, handsome-looking boy. I bet if Feinstein ever sees him, he'll definitely get booked at our age. Like, I was making that joke, and this was before the whole thing. So clearly we all knew what was fucking going on with Feinstein, because I remember making that joke about Feinstein before the the thing with the, the, the LOL, pretend you said 18. Like, this was before yeah. that happened. But clearly that was a, at least a thing that people knew about Feinstein enough to joke that, man, it would, that he's gonna, he's gonna completely lose it if he ever sees this Matt Seidel who looks like, looks 14 and uh, like a teen beat star. Um, ironically, also, ironically, Seidel didn't show up until the first show right after that whole thing happened. <laughs> it's kind of ironic. But I also remember, like we always used to tell, uh, you know, like big jokes also about how Rob Naylor needed to stay away from fine things. Rob Naylor is somebody who, when he was in his like 20s, looked like he was like 14 years old. So we were always like, ah, oh, Feinstein's coming by. Rob, hide Rob. Well, you know what's <laughs> funny? Like one of our most well-received episodes was we did a whole Feinstein episode where we just went in way too much detail about. But I, like it was funny. Like I, I talked at one point, you know, about like how you know Rob had like a reputation before even the scandal and stuff. And I like listening to you talk right now where you're talking about oh, like you know people knew about. It. It's like I knew about that, and the reason why is because I read the Death Valley Driver message board because you guys constantly would make jokes and talk about it. So like a lot of the rumors and like of like not just like even the most untoward things, just like that was the reason I was scared to buy videos from our video. Cause I would read the message words of like how shitty the surface and, and, and take quality could be and things like that. It was like, you guys were kind of like the warning signal. He used to get fucking coked up. I'm assuming or drunk and, ju- and Alleg- alle- allegedly fuck <laughs> him. Uh, let him sue me and, and spam the board early days of the green board. So I would show yeah. up at my temp job and have or something like that when I was like 25. I was temping at some place. And I have to spend like the first 15 minutes of whatever work day I had deleting like dick pics and the N-word and like all the stuff that Feinstein would like oh, spam the board at in the middle of the night on, on like a bender. So I'm not a fan of that guy. Like, but yeah. like, like well. even before this all happened, I remember <laughs> I was at the show where Shinya Hashimoto um, – the four, it was a four way with Shinya Hashimoto came to America. Um, it was Shinya Hashimoto, Carino, Dylan Knight, and, um, got some British guy. God, fuck, why can't I remember the British guy? This is what happens when you get old, guys. It's Gary Steele. Did you guys ever see that match? Uh, no, it's safe to say I don't think Matt or I have it. No, I, 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 didn't, I didn't see it. Yeah. Fucking incredible. It's on YouTube. It, it's like a, a Iron Man match, so it goes like 30 minutes. And it's like Shin Yashimoto wrestling in front of like nobody. But like he's one of my favorite wrestling moments of my entire life is watching Shin Yashimoto in front of like 80 people. 
in this thing. But I remember Feinstein was like working the show or taping the show or something. And I remember we parked right by his car. And I was like, I have to take a piss. I'm just going to piss all over his fucking car. And I just pissed on his car. <laughs> so that's my Rob Feinstein experience. I don't know if I ever actually had a conversation with him. But I did piss all over his car once in front of – before a show where Shin Yashimoto wrestled. Uh, I also remember, speaking of absolutely repellent, disgusting people from the early days of ROH, uh, Rock and Rebel. Uh, oh, yeah. Where Rock and Rebel had the ring. So you had to like watch him have a shitty match before yeah. I, th- those are on tapes. You guys probably haven't revisited any of you know, this. The, yeah. They, they definitely did not show any of them on the DVDs. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. yeah. So for, for those who haven't listened to like a while, cause we haven't talked about a while. Yeah. Rock and ripple had the Pennsylvania promoters license. Ring of art couldn't get like their own promoters license. So they had to use his and rock and rebel would let you borrow it. If you let him work a match. And so there'd be a bunch of, you ever look at the results for Philly ring of honor shows of a certain era and you go, where are these fucking rock and rebel matches that didn't make the DVD? That was basically the price you paid to promote in Philly. The fans paid the price too when they had to fucking watch. <laughs> so had to watch a bunch of those rocket, shitty rocket rebel versus Drew Blood or uh, uh, Drew. I think it was a Drew Blood and a Drew Money. And anyway, I think there were two different guys, or maybe it was the same guy who changed his gimmick name. Or maybe I'm not even remembering that right. <laughs> but uh, but rocket rebel was out there, and then rocket rebel uh, loudly like uh, Norio Hoshikawa worked that show too. Um, with Hashimoto it was like a zero one, uh, like came over with him as part of zero one and during Oshikawa's match, which was like a, it was a tag. I can't remember the result. He was like, it was like a tag mini tag tournament that he was in maybe teaming with red of a team of extremely short people. Um, but like rocket rebel loudly, uh, yelling like anti-Japanese slurs. Like, I can't believe people want to watch this, you know, (laughs) racial slur wrestle and, you know, like just, it's like as, you know, just like, I almost thought about going to fight Rock and Rebel. Like, I considered it. I was like, I don't want to get kicked out of this show before. This is my only chance to see it. Shane Ashimoto live. Going over and sucker punching Rock and Rebel is probably not a great idea. Um, it was definitely something that was the 26-year-old Phil would consider it. 46-year-old Phil would never consider it. But, you know, you're younger and you got some testosterone. I remember at least thinking about it because he was just such a loud, disgusting, obnoxious prick at this show. Um but did shut the fuck up when Shinya Hashimoto showed up. I mean, like, I remember he seemed like, like he wasn't making racial slurs to Shinya Hashimoto. And I think that first time Hashimoto kicked Dylan Knight in the lungs, I think I remember him garnering the Rocket Rebels' respect. Um, I don't know how we talked about that. But when we, when you do through the PWF, uh, Premier Wrestling Federation, uh, podcast, after the, after through the ROH years is over, you have me on for that episode. <laughs> Trevor, we have a project for our fifties. Um, yeah. Don't, don't, don't you, don't you all miss the two thousands indies with those stories? <laughs> I, I mean, I fucking miss the two thousands indies, yeah. man. The 2000s indies ruled yeah. like not just ROH, but you're know, like, your your lesser, your lesser lights. You know, there's yeah. still some really awesome shit going on. And, and, you know, you know, uh, I, IWC, ICW, and uh, and uh, what was the one that that used to run New York City that have the that have the six hour long shows? 
Matt Yee. If you, <laughs> no, I, I was that was that was that the promotion that would do like the uh, the in the early aughts, like the um, the Loki and Xavier matches and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would have those, and, and they would also their shows would be like six hours long. Shit, if Naylor like, was here, he'd remember the <laughs> the letters. Taylor would definitely remember it. I should also remember. It's just I just for some reason am blanking on the names of these USA I, Pro. Yes, USA Pro. Oh, yeah. Yes, and like so you got these tapes, and the tape would be like three video cassettes because the shows would be so long. And then, but you just get them because there'd be like one cool homicide match or a cool Xavier match in between. And then there would be like ten uh, like student matches. And then, like, the main event would be, like, Just Incredible versus Devon Dudley or something like that. Balls Mahoney versus Axel Rodden. Like, those would be always your, your main events would always be kind of, like, washed ECW dudes. Um, and then, but on, like, you know, the third from the top would be some incredible, like, Homicide or Loki or Xavier match. Well, I guess, so, that, was, I guess <laughs> that was ROH's whole idea is, like, we do these shows, but we just do that incredible match that's third from the top, and we just do a whole show of those. I guess that was, I like, mean, the concept. That's what it was. Feinstein was 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 distributing all of these shows jw yeah. shows and 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 usa pro shows and ICU. yeah that really was the, i think that really was the idea it was like oh we'll just do this without without balls mahoney <laughs> um uh, balls mahoney had a surprisingly good match with samoa joe in like 2003 or two early 2004 maybe i forget that was that jersey all pro and roh had a co-promoted show and that was like one of the top matches it was it's a it's a weird show but um um, that was boss mahoney had like an amateur background so every once in a while you go one of these shows and like boss mahoney would do like three minutes of like you know like ground control or partier work or something like oh boss mahoney could really kind of mat wrestle a little bit not to the level of Ian Rotten as like an incredible mat wrestler for a guy well known as an ECW garbage wrestler, but like a much lesser version of Ian Rotten where every once in a while it's like Balls Boney, you know, like work like a grounded arm bar. Like, yeah, cause grapple a little bit. Um, so um, after the when match, you mentioned, we... No, we don't mind if you go on some tangents. <laughs> Um, hey, no, you know what? Like that's like this is the draw. This is the draw of the show, Phil. So don't feel bad at all. This is like like this is a, a big kick for me because this is like getting Death Valley Driver book on take. It's like so many of the things you're talking about are things like I discovered from reading you saying things like this. So like hearing you out loud now say these things to me is is a weird little thrill. But um, what? <laughs> grandpa, Uncle, Grandpa Phil is telling the stories again. No, no, Guys, no. this time I pissed on Rob Feinstein's car. <laughs> Phil, I, Phil, I promise this episode of Through the Years is going to be a collector's item for people that listen to this podcast. So <laughs> don't feel bad at all. Uh, so um, <laughs> after the match, Aries gets on the mic. He talks about how they're still missing their Ring of Honor tag title belt. Tells the crowd someone stole them. They're going to find out who and teach them something about respect. So obviously, yeah, this is uh, – I believe this is Matt. My memory is always awful, but it's like uh, the angle that brings Hero and Claudio as the kings of wrestling into Ring of Honor. But I always think it's funny. Like in indie wrestling, you can never be 100% sure if it was a pre-planned angle or if people just forgot to bring the title belts to a show. Like there's always that there's always that there's always that chance that they just have to run with it. Who knows? But yeah, um, I mean, well, okay. So would did I mean did ROH make the? I mean, I assume they did. They made the wrestlers you know bring the belts around with them, right? Like they they did, yeah. okay, you take them. So I, 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 mean, I, I would assume that Aries and Strong both didn't forget. Um, but 
yeah, I'd say either way, it it was a it was a fairly unmemorable and ineffective way to bring in the kings of wrestling, but whatever, it's fine. And so it's intermission. We join Colt Cabana backstage. He's almost immediately interrupted by Lacey. Colt calls her a cutie pie. Says he, she says she's in no mood. Asks Colt if he's heard about the rumors going around about the two of them. They've been go- these rumors going around the locker room and on the internet. Colt denies knowing anything. Lacey tells Colt to put a stop to rumors. She walks away. The camera and Colt both perv on her behind as she does so, as is typical of Ring of Honor on this era. Uh, yeah, just continuing that. A little angle, putting a little toe in the water. But that brings us to after intermission, Adam Pierce and Steve Carino take on BJ Whitmer and Homicide. It goes to a no contest when the Briscoes ran and attacked Homicide in 15 minutes, 30 seconds. So as soon as Carino and Pierce make their entrance, Carino gives Bobby Cruz a hug that Cruz clearly does not want, which was an enjoyable facial reaction. And Carino takes the mic. The crowd chants for homicide immediately. Creon asks if that's supposed to make him scared. He says the only thing that scares him are some of the fans in this building. He walks, mocks one fan for being so fat that they charged him for two tickets. A different large fan, and this might have to be the image for the show, a different large fan in a different section proceeds to stand up, slap his ass at Creon, and then remove his shirt and get really pumped up. Uh, Pierce actually takes a bump for this. We get a holy shit chant. Creon asks if someone is going to milk this fan and then tells him he's going to die in a year. Steve points out that then points out that they have a celebrity attendance, Green Lantern fan's dad. Pierce says they should kick his ass right now. Green Lantern fan's dad flips them off. Creon asks him how it feels to have the biggest piece of shit for a son. He says, I'd ask your mom, but she's in the back having sex with all the boys. Creon then asks, where's the fan savior? Where's the man? Where's homicide? Q Homicide's music comes in, fights Pierce one and Creo one on two for a short bit, loses out, but then out races BJ Whitmer to make this a tag match. BJ attacks Carino. Pierce pulls BJ off. It's like, you gotta make a choice, even though it seems pretty obvious he just made a choice. Me or homicide. BJ attacks Pierce. The fight goes the match goes on. And then we get the match, which is like um I feel again, I know I'll let you start this off because I know you're a big connoisseur of uh the world of Carino and uh homicide no he's a really you big bj whitmer fan that's what he's told us <laughs> earlier <laughs> uh yeah then really the, 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 at this point in history the best time to be a bj whitmer fan and to say that would be uh at this point in 2023 but um you know this was basically like a, one of those tales of two matches where it's like part crowd brawl and then they kind of just everyone settles back into a more sedate standard tag but what'd you think about this crowd ball part was pretty great the sedate yeah tag sedate i didn't that didn't do i mean you know whitmer and and pierce are two of your le- lesser lights in the history of free of honor in a lot of ways so it's like those two those two guys show up it's just like uh was there weren't they in like some sort of like were they in some sort of group with brett albright i remember well, yeah, like yeah, one, late, about, three, about a year later that started yeah bucks bums <laughs> are all part of one group together and what probably had his moments right i mean he's he's had some great matches um but for the most part your average your average bj whitmer match is pretty pretty bad um and pierce same thing you know like when they're not like bleeding or being part of you know some big brawl but there's like working a bog standard tag not great i mean i always love credo homicide this is not the this is not your this is not the Carino homicide you're going to point to uh, when you talk about how great their stuff is, but I enjoyed it and love Julius Smokes as like a 
die. And so, and I don't, I didn't really remember much of this period of Carino homicide. So, you know, it was like, I, I, uh, I was sort of, like I said, fading a little away from ROH at this point. So I didn't really remember Carino homicide this era of it. I don't think it would ended up being that great. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's the big. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd say what they what they did in this match was a lot better than what they ended up doing in their singles match a few months later in Philly. So for that's any uh, indication. Of, kind of a but I mean yeah. the, uh, the the that match in Connecticut I saw live and their barbed wire match are both absolute Stone Cold classics. And uh, I think, well, that's and what makes we, we, so we, we are on record of agreeing with both of those statements. I would say, yeah. Yeah, we always yeah. like after we rewatch every show in a year, we kind of give out awards, and we like unanimously agree like that Carino homicide, like the first match is that's just the best match of that year, and um, yeah. So I, I, I uh, a fire oh, match. I did a barbed wire piece for the Ringer, um, and I rewatched that barbed wire match and was blown away about how much how great I thought that was for something I didn't remember, like contemporaneously thinking was 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 incredible. But watching that a second time, I was like, holy shit, this is great. God damn, Homicide is taking some fucking insane bumps on it. Like, he just kept, like, he'd do all these bumps where he'd get, like, tied, you know, with his, like, like Achilles tied up in the barbed wire, like, multiple times and looked like he was going to, like, you know, just, you know, like, end up having, needing, you know, repro- uh, reproductive surgery on his on his like tendons after that match, it's totally crazy. Well, so this Phil, Phil, if you if you're if you're talking about uh, ROH barbed wire matches that you don't remember, the week before this was the second ever ROH barbed wire match, and believe it or not, it was between BJ Whitmer and the Necro Butcher, and uh, and Trevor and I both liked it. I'd be very curious to know if if you like it because the thing is with with Pierce and Whitmer, they they definitely their best stuff in ROH was the stuff they did during that CZW feud, which had just ended. They were this was definitely like on the low end of their performances. They were not feeling it on this night at all, even by their standards. I would say, um, you know, I, almost like they were like recovering from all the crazy shit. Especially Whitmer. Whitmer did some insane shit the week before in that match with Necro. So it was really like it was up to Homicide and Carino to carry this match, and their stuff was good, and all the other stuff was pretty bad. Um, yeah, I definitely. No, I had that. I had that. Uh, Whitmer Necro Butcher. I had that as thirteen on my list of the twenty uh, best barbed wire matches for uh, for the when I did the ringer. So I did like it. I liked it a lot. Uh, you know. Um, yeah, like is you, you, is really good. Really good BJ Whitmer performance. This really was like we we've been talking on recent episodes. This was basically like the peak of BJ Whitmer's career in the sense of I don't think he would ever be more over because for the timeline he had you know in the last few months he had done those two early Jimmy Jacobs matches with like you know the one where he power bombs Jimmy into the crowd and the other one where the before that where they slip and nearly die which got you know big buzz. Then they did the CZW feud which like Matt said got you know his performance was pretty good in that and got some real buzz. He had that Super Dragon match and then. He had the uh, the barbed wire match with Necro Butcher. So like this is a point. Like even on this show, like he's getting chances. Like the only time in my in his career I can remember, like Ring of Honor, like BJ Whitmer actually like getting <laughs> solo chances. A like this is kind of your. Even though this is not a peak BJ Whitmer performance, you're actually kind of seeing basically him like the the, the show after one or two shows after kind of like peak BJ Whitmer popularity. This is it's kind of all downhill for him here, other than uh. You know, he does have some more good stuff with Jimmy Jacobs in the future, but 
Uh, Matt, you gave some more some this thoughts. I don't know if BJ Whitmer Apex Mountain. BJ Whitmer to steal a uh, <laughs> yeah, this, a this, gimmick this. from one of my other rigor colleagues. This <laughs> Apex Mountain BJ Whitmer. Not this match wasn't, but this era was. I uh, I wrote up Whitmer Jacobs uh, at one of their IWA Mid South matches in Way of the Blade. I remember thinking pretty was was incredibly awesome. Um, but uh, they had, like an I Quit match. It was just great in IWA Mid South. Um, so yeah, PJ Weber. Yeah. Like his highs are pretty high. Like yeah. if you put together like 10, the, a, a list of the 15 best BJ Whitmer matches, you'd be like, holy shit, BJ Whitmer. But you know, that's like, once you get down to like the, if you, when, if you did the 30 best matches, 20 through 30, you're going to be pretty hard to find like great ones. And you're, I think your average BJ, high ceiling, low floor kind of BJ Weber as a wrestler. And just to, and just to show what, how wonderful the timing of Trevor and I are, you know, we did that review of the barbed wire match and really praised PJ a lot. And then like immediately after that, all those stories came out about, you know, uh, the accusations against, against Whitmer and he got fired from AEW and stuff. So, you know, we are really, killing it with the timing on our, it was the one show that we were like you know, like we're probably not as negative on bj as you are but like we're not like giant bj boosters and it was like the one show where we really gave him his flowers and then immediately afterwards he gets canceled for some pretty horrendous accusations so uh yeah so matt um i don't know if you have any more thoughts on the match i i would just say um yeah, I agree with Phil in the sense, like, the brawl is the best part of this match. Like, it's one of those ones where, even though Ring of Honor has the two handheld ringside cameras, they never want to use both of them. So, even though Pierce and, and, and uh, Whitmer brawl off somewhere else, you never see that. You just see the Homicide Carino brawl. But to be fair, if you're only going to see one of those brawls, that's the one you want to see. And, you know, it, it it's not the craziest brawl you've ever seen, but I just like it because it, it gives you what you want from Homicide Carino in that... It has that sense of danger. Like you, you never knew how much these guys really didn't like each other. Always, you always felt like they. I had the best of them. That they were like one wrong move away from like legitimately angering the other wrestler. And so here, you know, when you see, you know, a, a homicide throw a chair at at Carino's head, it feels like kind of reckless. When you see Carino throw a punch in the crowd, like to homicide, it looks pretty snug. Like it, it's, it's, it allows you to kind of suspend that disbelief and it's, it's what I want. And then from these two, and then when it gets back into the ring, yeah, it be, it's one of those weird matches where they have this wild brawl and then they make their way back to the ring and go, well, we should just have a regular tag match for a while. And just when it starts to seem like maybe it could pick up, you know, homicides getting in the ring, he's getting the hot tag. We we get our storyline where the Briscoes run in and we get a, a non-finish, which I imagine Gabe, I know Gabe's philosophy is, is like when you have a couple big matches up top that you hope will send fans home happy, you can kind of give them the non-finish or the more disliked, you know, the more risky booking of something like this where you kind of get, you know, just a schmoz out of it. But overall, yeah, it, it's – it, Matt, I'm really sad because I, I, my memory is awful, but I think you're, you're right that this is probably like, we're going to see worse from Carino and Homicide than this, which is sad because I, I love that stuff so much. It's one of my biggest disappointments that it doesn't live up to the promise. And it, it's so weird because that first match they had, not the Bitter Friends, Stiffer Enemies one they ever loved. It's actually, there was one earlier that one in like the first New York show, I think like the, the first, anniversary, the first show. anniversary show. Yeah. That match between them isn't that great either. It's like they fall into this incredible chemistry. And then I think for the rest of their careers, like when you watch them, you see they have these little glimpses of it. They'll capture it once in a while, but they never put it all 
together again like they do in those two matches. Or I don't know what happens. It's just lightning, it's, it's light, lightning in a bottle, I guess, for a little while between those two, and it you know doesn't always last forever. But um, yeah, yeah. The only other, th- other things I would say about the match um are the crowd was still like I said pretty hot for this storyline, so it made the match I think feel a little bit less plotting than it got at times. Um, it's and you mentioned that they are willing to do a shitty finish here because they know they'll send the crowd home happy with the top two matches. Just goes to show how like Gabe was fairly confident that an ROH crowd would accept a time limit finish, whereas a lot of other you know fan bases wouldn't. Because you know, I think for a lot of companies that would be the shitty finish, you know, the time limit draw. Mm-hmm. But they knew ROH was educated to it, so they accepted that as a valid finish in a world title match if they got the full sixty minutes. So. I think that's you know that's can pretty I, smart. Can I the uh, segue into our next match? Sure. Yeah. So speaking of horrific domestic violence accusations, oh, Davy Richards is coming. Into- <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I, no, free to cut. This, this has been a this has been a, uh, a rush. <laughs> this has been a rough few months. If you if you do a retro Ring of Honor podcast between Richards and uh and Whitmer, yeah. Um, I'll just say between the last match and this match, you know, after the match, last match got thrown out, the Briscoes beat down Homicide continues. Smokes tries to stop it. He's immediately taken out. The Briscoes pilmanize Homicide's arm with a top rope leg drop from Jay Briscoe with a chair before they get run off by a chair wielding smoke. So that, that we will get a more, one more kind of this, this, this storyline will continue later in the show. But yeah, oh. then we get. Oh, and then the only other thing that I'm going to say about that whole segment about the Carino promos at the, at the beginning. First of all, besides, you know, the, the homophobia and the, and the fat shaming and stuff that probably wouldn't, wouldn't fly nowadays. Um, you know, fortunately, um, I think probably most promotions now on their shows, if they could, would edit out the stuff where Carino goes after an individual fan. I feel like at the yeah. time that was, that was sort of except like, it's just funny that, that Green Lantern fans immortalized on these DVDs so many times by having major wrestlers cut promos on him and his family. Um, and the line where it's, it says, I'd, uh, I'd ask his mom, but she's in the back having sex with all the boys. I, I, I kind of was like, oh, you know, that kind of just makes his mom sound really popular and cool. So <laughs> it's funny that Korea was trying so hard to be a heel, but yet, like both nights of this double shot, he like goes into Greenlander fan, and immediately, like that gets him like the big face reaction. Like, there's no, yeah. there's no better way to get these crowds to like him than to go after Greenlander fans. So, like, um, but yeah, we get to the semi main event, and one of the two, what was billed as two, one of the two big drawing matches of the show, we have Kenta. Defeating Davy Richards via pinfall in 19 minutes, 26 seconds after hitting go, the go to sleeve. Uh, I, I have, I have a feeling there's going to be some interesting thoughts about this match. Uh, Matt, they have a match like, I think a year or two later that's remembered, I think, a lot more than this match, but this was the first. What'd you think about this? I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, yeah, like I said, I, there probably will be a lot of disagreement about this. I, I still like this match a lot. Like I, you know, the early part of the match is, you know, fairly like, you know, hard kicks and, you know, uh, Davey is kind of holding his own and then, and then just, uh, you know, Kenta would sort of get more of the advantage and it really just, you know, the story is just basically that the protege is, you know, valiantly holding his own against the teacher. You know, there's some, you know, the crowd isn't on fire, but they're fairly attentive. We get one of those, you know, Gabe cut-ins where Prazak has to say that the fans are policing themselves because there's a cra- there's a fan that starts to chant USA and then the other fans tell him to shut the fuck up. 
And uh, I'm actually wondering if Prezak is so trained by this point in that line that Gabe doesn't even have to tell him to say that anymore. I don't know. What do you think? Do you think Gabe is always behind him telling him to say that? Or do you think Prezak's like, oh, I should say that now myself? I mean, I I think even if he has learned, I think he's only learned after Gabe slipped him a few pieces of nose paper. Say say the police line. But I thought that the final sequence with all of the, uh, you know, with all the near falls and stuff, I think that still holds up really well. Like the crowd was going crazy for that. And I thought the execution of all that was really good. Um, you know, I could see this match, you know, kind of seeming a little bit, I don't know. I don't want to say soulless because I do think there was a story there and I think that there was emotion involved in the crowd. Um, but I, I could see why somebody might not think this was the best Kenta match of the era or anything, but, I thought that the final sequence was really, really top tier exciting, um, you know, and I think helped tell the simple story. So I thought this ended up being a, a pretty great match. I'm, I'm still, I'm still pretty high on it. All these years later, Phil, I uh, when I saw we were reviewing the show, this was one of those matches. This will be interesting to get Phil's thoughts on because I know, like, I remember this era, you know, Kenta, and maybe, maybe for David Richards it was a little after this, but those were some pretty device of people in certain corners where there were people that, I mean, you, they were very polarizing that you loved those guys or you were really annoyed by them. And I mean, this is them kind of like, I would say, I, I would say both sides could probably take away yeah. plenty to support their arguments from this match. what do you think? I feel bad guys. Cause it feels like you're really setting me up to shit on this match. <laughs> and I kind of like, I kind of liked it. I was kind of like coming in expecting to show up. Not a Davey Richards guy. I think he sucks mostly. And he's been in some of the worst matches I've like worst hyped matches I've ever seen. Uh, He was fine here. I mean, he worked kind of stiff. He had his really cool tope. I always thought he had a really cool tope. Didn't feel like this match got to the point where you wanted to like throw your computer out the window because they just did 5,000 near falls. Kenta was kind of stiff. I don't know. It's pretty good. I kind of liked it. I'm shy, but I like. I, I feel bad because it feels like you guys were teeing me up to to yeah. to take a piss all over this match. That was pretty good. I imagine the, if I was live, I think I. How many matches did they have against each other? Uh, two, I think two in ROH, two? definitely two, two in ROH. Yeah. Again, the the, Wait, the one that they have a couple years later is way more remembered. Where was the other one? Was that oh. was, was that in Dallas? Yeah, was that like a Mania weekend oh, show Houston, in like 08? Houston, Houston. Yeah. It, was, it was in 09, yeah. Because I kind of thought I remembered seeing these guys wrestle each other live. That was maybe one of the reasons I thought I was at the show, but I don't think I was at the show. And maybe I was some other Davey Richards match I remembered kind of liking, well, surprised that I liked live against somebody else. I don't know. It was pretty good. I really liked well, Tope. And I'll I thought it was say, stiff and kind of, you know, served its purpose. <laughs> I'll just say, Phil, you have uh, fucking betrayed me because uh, I'm going to be the goddamn low vote on this match now because I thought I thought we were going to get to team up on that. But instead, I'm the one being teamed up on because uh, this is one of those matches where I watched it. I realized this was exactly what I expected. And I also realized I kind of wanted something that was surprising me because, you know, both these guys are known for hard kicks. You want to see them throw hard kicks? They throw a ton of them. They, they both both of them. They do. You like their signature shots? They do basically all of them in this match. And I think that's really all I got from this match. Like, I'm a guy that's known for making a lot of wrestling and food analogies. I don't know why I do that. I'd say this is a match for people who call cooking meal prep and the food protein. And when you ask <laughs> them if a recipe is good, they just quote the number of calories, fat, grams, and carbs. Um, do you know? Do you know people like this, Trevor? 
Yes, you you they can call find all, them all over protein. YouTube, Matt. <laughs> Anyone that talks about like this this match to me is a slightly overcooked chicken breast with nothing on. It, it, there's an account that Dave Meltzer retweets a lot that he loves for some reason, where it's just a guy who he breaks down matches by the stats. Like this match had 17 strikes and five near falls and seven pin attempts, and he breaks down classic matches. This is a match that would play great on that, like the strikes and near fall counts and everything that this is, but. What I would say is these two guys are pretty divisive in circles. I'm capable of enjoying both quite a bit, but I realize watching such, I like them when they kind of add things on top of the stiffness of moves. Like I like Kenta when he's being a hilariously mean little prick to people and he's just being cocky and an asshole. I like Davy Richards when he plays this kind of goofball ass showing jock. Like we seen you know, a couple of his ring of honor performances already, you know, the kind of guy who does the grr work rate stuff, but then he'll do a big comical stumble cell and flare flop or he'll scream. I got him right when his opponents behind him ready to attack. Like I, I like that layer of something extra on top of that. To me, that's what kind of, Seasons the chicken breast, so to speak. To me, this is just the, there's no real story emotion. It's just the move. Matt, I know you said there's like the story of the project. To me, I felt like one of the things about this match is the whole story is supposed to be, oh, it's the young Davy Richards, even though they're probably very close in age, you know, being tested by his much higher ranking, you know, mentor, the Japanese star Kenta. I feel like if you show this match to someone, apart from the finish, if you ask them like. Who is, is, is one of these guys supposed to be way above the other and who they wouldn't have a good answer. I feel like they worked this pretty damn back and forth, even for a match that was supposed to be about, Oh, the protege is getting tested. Um, you know, there's enough action in this. It's, it, it's all executed. Well, they're stiff million kicks. It's good to me. I would, but I wouldn't call this great. And I'm probably going to be for a lot of people that watch this based on the review, be the low vote. But Are you, uh, so would you say that the, um, that the tag match with the Briscoes that we reviewed on the last show, you like that one better? Um, it's, it's, it's of the same level probably, but it, it's just, I don't, it's just one of those matches where it, I feel kind of hollow about it. There's something missing from it. But I, I will again say I'm the outlier. I thought I was going to have backup, but I've been betrayed. Because if I go to like – if you look at the live reports, I'll just go to the Observer. Dave wrote based on the live reports, you know, these two kicked the hell out of each other, of course. And losing this match elevated Richards to star level for most reports. It did, feel, it did feel like that in the building when it happened. It was like, well, he got really over with this match. I mean the crowd was like really, really, really loving him by the end. Yeah, and he, Dave writes big ovation for both when it was over, and I heard everything from four, I've heard not everything I've heard four and a quarter to four and a half on this one, with the exception of the low key match. It may have been Kenta's best singles match in ROH. So yeah, like this for most people was the match of the night. Um, I'm gonna say I disagreed. We'll, we'll obviously get to why I disagree on the next match, but I accept I am probably gonna be the low vote on this for most people but it's I funny about just four and a half stars but four and a half stars is a real fucking pan in a melter review now right like oh yeah <laughs> oh my god yeah like that the, the mid card tag will get four three quarters it'll be kind of like he'll say one sentence about it <laughs> so yeah maybe uh but um i don't know i guess i was expecting to really hate it and kind of surprised how i didn't so I think, you know, that might have been part of, like, we may have the about the same opinion on this match, but I was expecting it just to be completely bloated CrossFit wrestling. And I was like, oh, this is relatively yeah, it, it riskly paced, it, it, it not wasn't bloated even, It wasn't even 20 minutes long, which which I think helped it not get too bloated. But yeah, that happens with Trevor and, and I a lot, which is just like, 
we will have similar views on a match, but I will feel more excited about mine than Trevor's because Trevor would see a match on paper and be like, oh, this this should be a really good match. And I'll be like, oh, I, I remember this show and I don't remember this match at all. So if I ended up liking it, that means that it exceeded my expectations. So I think expectations yeah. play a huge part, especially yeah, when you're doing like these wait. retro reviews. I kept waiting for Davey Richards to drag this to hell. And the fact that he didn't, I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty good. Like, I kept, I kept like anticipating him to like, you know, just, just, just like, you know, do some Davy Richards bullshit and make this match horrible. <laughs> and it just kind of felt like it went through and never did that. And it kind of a nice finish felt like it ended at the right time. And I just saw, so I was like, Oh, this is pretty good. You know, like I normally hate Davy Richards matches and didn't hate this. So I guess it come off more positive, uh, than you might, than, than just, you know, cause it's like, okay, I normally, he's like normally one of my least favorite wrestlers of all time. And this was pretty good and had a nice tope and kicks look good. And at no point did he drag it into Davey Richards out where it's like, you know, I'm going to do 11 brain busters for a two count. And then the other guys can go right back on offense and do 11 brain busters of his own. And then we're going to stand off and stare at each other and the crowd's going to clap. I mean, like that was always what I was kind of expecting to keep happening and never really got there. And I was like, oh, okay, this was okay. This I is think, the last I th- match. I think when I it was like, I felt, it felt like I was almost, re- I was almost like, Coming into it like resenting you two for making me fucking watch this. It's like oh, these fucking guys. Being like, <laughs> Again, I thought I was going to get that fill, and yeah, I, mean, I, I was going to agree with him. <laughs> I, th- I think he becomes more self indulgent though, like when he becomes you know champion and has these like. 40 minute matches. That's when you really get that stuff. And then the funny thing is, that's when Meltzer started giving him the five star matches a lot. Yeah. And like the Mike Elgin one that everyone points to, you know, where, yeah, you, that was the one where I feel like people really drew a line in the sand. But no, I'm Matt, I think, I think Phil, you, I was, Meltzer's you guys are awful, guys. They're awful. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, yes, he gives them five stars to this unwatchable garbage because his opinions are just terrible. They're the worst. He's Armand White, but if Armand White somehow was Roger Ebert. But whatever. <laughs> well, that that seeks perfectly into this because I've kind of set up a little thing before we get into this the main event that kind of contrasts a few people. So so we'll get into this. So the main event, of course, our final match, Ray Vaughn World Title Match, Brian Danielson, Samoa Joe in the quote-unquote fight of the century, went to a 60-minute time limit draw. So before I've asked everyone for their thoughts, I, I did my research and I feel like this, the, the quotes I got here from a few people tell a little story. So first we'll go to Wrestling Observer live reports. This is, you know, Dave talking based on him not seeing the match, but live reports. He wrote, the show was headlined by Danielson keeping the ROH title going to a 60 minute draw with Samoa Joe. Reports on this one varied. I heard everything from two and three quarter stars to four and a quarter stars. The match was slow early, but the crowd was going nuts for the last 10 minutes and a lot of near falls and the crowd was on its feet. The crowd did want five minutes more and Danielson refused to accept it. There were people who were disappointed due to it being slow early on and didn't reach what you'd expect from the fight of the century. Also, people figured they were going 60 pretty early on from how it was paced. Even people who loved Danielson versus Joe were saying Kenta's win over Richards in the semifinal was the battle of the night. Now, we'll go to some weird internet reviewer and guy named Phil Schneider from the Death Valley Driver video review who he wrote at the time 
You can't really go wrong with the two best wrestlers in your promotion wrestling in a main event for a title. I really enjoyed this match. I haven't seen a ton of 2006 ROH, so this was my first chance to watch Hill Champion Brian Danielson, and th- he was a blast. This was probably the best 60-minute draw Ring of Honor has run, but I do think these two have a better 25-minute match in them. Still, it had three separate This Is Awesome chants, so Meltzer should re- really should drop the five on it. Um and then you have some more details, and but I'll just move on to uh, – you talked about last 20 minutes or so where it's really spectacular. Um, Joe's tope was as good as I have ever seen it. It was almost Pope Takeshi-ish, like someone touched a so, – like someone dropped a couch out of a four-story walk-up. This is why you read Death Valley Driver video reviews back in the day. Um, anyway. God, I've used that out of the walk-up thing. I don't know how many times I've used that. <laughs> what a what – a, what a chat GPT Phil Schneider lied that fucking <laughs> Um So, but then we go, we get to the moment. And this was rare at this time. Guys. Dave only would watch like very select shows and matches from Ring of Honor in this era. If they either really pushed it on him or he really wanted to see a specific match because he didn't obviously have the time. So Dave got the tape on this one, went out of his way to watch this match. And, and not Kent or Davey Richards, mind you, either. Just this. Dave would write, Dave, did he throw the five? We'll see. Dave wrote, Danielson is a total pro wrestling artist as champion. There are inherent problems in a 60-minute match because you have to work a slower pace, and most guys work a lot better in 20 minutes than 60. Still, this was a four-and-a-quarter star match with the crowd going nuts for the last 10 minutes, and to me, it never dragged. The only boring chance were Danielson playing the crowd by calling himself the most boring wrestler in the world. Only then did he get the chance. But So I like comparing this, you know, fans very divided, Phil into it, Dave pretty into it. Can I, can I, also, then, can I also add the Brian Danielson quote about this match? Yes, I was going to say, Matt, this is what I was going to end with, but you can read it. I, I love the fact that we've gone to this over and over again, that the biggest critic of Brian Danielson is often Brian Danielson. So Matt, if you've got the quote too... Yeah, read this quote. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not going to read like I'm. I'm going to cut this off because it comes because he's talked about matches that come later. But I'm going to read this yeah. paragraph. He says, yeah. in August of 2006, I had three one-hour matches within a two-week period. Two of them on back-to-back nights. It used to be that the NWA World Heavyweight Champion toured all over the world and worked with the top star in every territory. Sometimes he would win clean, but oftentimes, because the champion would be moving on, the local star would continue wrestling in the area. They would wrestle to a 60-minute draw. Luthez did it. Harley Race did it. Ric Flair did it. I looked at it as my chance to do it. Unfortunately, wrestling fans don't have the patience they used to, and just as unfortunately, I am not as good as my predecessors at going 60 minutes. None of the hour-long matches were bad. They just weren't epic in the way you want it to be. The first one was against Samoa Joe in New Jersey, and I could not remember a single thing about it. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that is Brian Danielson in a nutshell. Like, like just Okay, I wanted to hear my Brian Danielson quote. So I... Again, we're deep into this podcast, so I'm working on another way of the blade book. I'm working on where it's going to be AEW specific, and one of the things I'm doing is interviews. It's going to have some oral history uh, aspects to it, and I got to – I did – I mentioned earlier I have this Brian Danielson thing for GQ, which may or may not run, but I additionally tagged on and got a bunch of quotes about some of his uh, AEW matches, which are going to be in like the way of the blade AEW book. Uh, so this is his quote uh, from this, uh, from talking to me about 60-minute matches. We were talking about the the uh, Iron Man match with um, MJF. 
And he goes, I've learned so much as I've gotten older. Some of the early hour matches I did, they were just like, oh, I can go an hour. Let's go an hour. And without having a real idea in my head about the chapters of the story within the match. Right. And so creating the context of an hour long match, creating beats within that match where there's inflection points where something happens that becomes an important part of the story. And then something else happens and that becomes an important part of the story. So as far as storytelling beats, I wasn't even thinking of those things in 2006. There was one month in 2006 where I think I did three 60 minute matches and none of them were put together in an intelligent way. Yeah. So, yeah it, like match it kind of matches what he said, you know, back when he wrote this, uh, this uh, WWE book that he that i just quoted from it's it's interesting because i i i get what he's saying but i also don't think that people who watch these matches felt that they were wholly uninteresting either you know i don't but i was watching this and you know part of it i think my rewatch of this now versus when i watched this in 2006 is colored a little bit by having this conversation with him you know, relatively recently about 60 minute matches. And I do not think this is even close to as good as the MJF match. Yeah. Or probably, or probably the first hangman page match. I mean, I, I I think Trevor knows like, I love that MJF match. Like I I just loved it like crazy. And I, you know, I really like that first hangman. I think the the first hangman page match might've been my favorite AEW match of 2021. So I I definitely think he got better at this. Like it's, it's, it's interesting to see. And yeah, no, and so, so part of me while watching this, like, it was kind of colored by that. I was like, yeah, this has got a lot of really cool shit in it, but you're right, this is not a match where that has, it builds to things from the beginning to the end. It isn't really. They just do a bunch of stuff, and it's cool stuff, and they have kind of a hot near uh, run at the end set up, but there was nothing in the first 15 or 20 minutes that set up the last 15 or 20 minutes particularly, right? I mean, all any individual five minutes of this match was really good, but there you're, he's, you're, he's right. He isn't crafting something from minute one to minute 60. But I, I would be, cur- uh, I'd be curious to know, like, cause and you guys definitely have watched more of this stuff than I have and you could probably, you know, better speak to it, but like the, the 60 minute NWA title matches that he's kind of inspired by here, like the, on your, you know, where the NWA, where Harley Race or Ric Flair or whatever would, would have the 60 minute draw on a, you know, on a night with the local baby face. Would they be crafting those matches to the degree that we're talking about now in the same way? Or would they, would they kind of just be doing like, all right, we're going to wrestle for this long and then eventually the match is going to end on a, on a hot series of moves, you know? I'm well, one day I think, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, one thing I think we've seen uh, with Danielson in this era, like I, I, I talked about before, he's a guy I think he literally at this period of time just had long matches because he saw it, one, as a challenge, and two, he just liked being in the ring, having a lot of ring time. So I think a lot of people, I think, have long matches because they're trying to accomplish something or get noticed or, or some bragging rights. I like When he got the title, Danielson, they just started giving him like almost every title match was 30 minutes, basically. And I feel like he just likes it. And and I think the thing about Danielson, yeah, that you do see, and I think other, a lot of wrestlers have in the past did this, is I think there are a lot of matches you watch Danielson of this era, even though I think he's one of the greatest wrestlers of all time. I love his work. But there are a lot of matches where, of this era, where, you can see him. He's almost kind of just doing really fun stuff, but he's just dicking around for the first five or ten minutes, and then he kind of finds something, and then he goes, oh, like, okay, that'll be the story of the match. Like, he's not coming – yeah, so, like, what Phil's saying about, you know, 
stuff busy work at first. Like it feels like a lot, like a lot of his matches. I think if you rewatch of this era, feel like Danielson kind of just playing around until he seizes on something that kind of catches his interest. And then he pushes the match in that direction. And to me, when you watch this match, the last 30 minutes feel like a match that kind of tells a story as like, could, could have been a great match just on its own. And then the first 30 minutes do feel like a separate amount of busy work to fill the third that, that I think is really good. Well done stuff. But it is almost like you could cut the first 30 minutes off and just have like a complete meal on the back half. And so, yeah, it does feel like we're dicking around, we're killing time. And then, okay, now I'm going to start working on your knee. Now we're going to tell the story. You know, now we're going to go into the bigger stuff. And I, I, I do think a more of the earlier 60 minute matches are probably like that in, in wrestling where it's guys just killing time until they find something that they can kind of a thread they can pull on. Yeah, and it's kind of, but you know, it's a lot more mat work and a lot more. I mean, it's is slower paced, right, than this match. And I think that you know that is something that. But you know, it's you know, you want to watch Terry Funk dick around for fifteen twenty minutes, right? That's yeah. going to lead something big at the end. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot of patience for super long matches anymore. Like that was something you know, like I so this you know, part of me is just like for the most part, I'm. Whereas it used to like really look in this era, you really look forward to trying to watch guys go this long. Now it's like, God, how long is that? Just 28 minutes long. Jesus Christ. Why is <laughs> seven minutes long? And that's just kind of how I more of that's how my tastes have changed. I have less tolerance for super long matches, even on rewatch. I mean, this is some cool shit in it. I was happy I watched it, but I don't, I don't know if Joe and Danielson ever together had a great, like a really great match. Even some good matches, but like yeah. that was the the ROH match. There's never like you're if you're making a list of the greatest ROH matches that you guys have seen as you go through this. Are these Joe Danielson matches? They're not up the super top tier. Well, like I, I guess in my review, let me argue with twenty years ago, Phil Schneider. These aren't as good as the Joe Pug matches. I will so say this, this, this match definitely was not as good as the Joe Pug matches. Danielson. Yeah, what am I talking about? Danielson and. Danielson and Joe have a match in October of 2004. Joe defending the title. It's about 40 minutes, maybe a little bit less. And that match is considered by a lot of people to be a top tier, like ROH title match. You know, I don't, I don't think that Trevor and I had it quite at that level, but a lot of people do. Like, a, a lot, like that's, that's one of the matches that people talk about. And their 2006 stuff, you know, I was so hyped for this match going live because I was so into that 2004 match. And so I, you know, I, I enjoyed this live, you know, I was really excited by the ending. I thought it was a great match, but I never thought it lived up to that one. So that would be the one, that would be the one Joe versus Danielson match where it's like, okay, this one kind of lived up to people's imaginations. Was the 2004 Philly? Yeah, it was Philly. Yeah, the the Midnight Express reunion show. Oh, I was at the main event. I was at that show. For sure. Yeah, we, probably yeah. if I had time, I could dig up your. You probably reviewed that, I bet, because I bet well, you guys I'm did like sure a road report that. or something. I, definitely, that one. I remember. I remember that. That was the one. Where I remember the Midnight Express reunion stuff. Like, yeah. And, 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 Tre- and Trevor, I'm remembering right. You didn't have it at that like top tier no, level either, if, right? If I remember when we like wrapped up the year, and I don't think this is. A, I think we're pretty in consensus here. We we consider that like a great match that I, I think we would both agree to this day. That's probably that's easily the best match they ever had. But like, it was not. I think we would both rank the Punk Joe matches above that. Joe and I mean Samoa Joe and Jay Briscoe in the cage above that. You know, even that crazy, you know, Punk and Ace Steel tag brawl with the Prophecy above that. Like there was a bunch of stuff we liked more than it, but that was a really good year for Ring of Honor for like 
the top end matches. Yeah. yeah and- that's what I mean. I don't think it breaks a, a year end top 10 or a promotion top 50, even though these are arguably the two best wrestlers in ROH history. They just, yeah. for some reason, I don't think ever had, you know, ever had that absolutely, uh, transcendent match against each other. I'd really like to see them have a match against each other. Now. I think that old Joe and old Danielson could do it in a way that young Joe and Jim Danielson never did. Well, Danielson, uh, and, Danielson was talking about it a little bit at that press conference, you know, but obviously, you know, we'll see if, and when he, yeah. uh, he comes back yeah, from the he, injury. He name dropped Joe is one of the guys he would want to, like one of the five or six names he name dropped was like, Joe. I was like, wow, that's the one that kind of sticks out. But yeah. And, um, Going to this period of, of, of 2006, you know, this was one of the better years in Ring of Honor history. But one of the disappointing things, I think, is that Joe Danielson, if, if someone told you going in, well, they did basically tell us that you're getting a Joe Danielson feud where they're wrestling each other a bunch of times. Because this is just the first of a few matches they're going to have. And you're getting the, re, you know, another redo of the Homicide Carino feud. You'd be like, holy shit. And sadly, that's like... Both of those missed the mark. And, and like here, I would say this again, I think this match is, is low great. I, I, I don't think it, you know, I, I agree with Phil. I think that's the perfect way to put that. It's not transcendent. It's, it's certainly not, it, it does not live up to the fight of the century, the two best wrestlers in Ring of Honor history. You know, you would hope for your expectations are the absolute ceiling and it never reaches there. But that is the one thing that kind of makes this, this last like third of the year kind of weird where you got two things that look like absolute home runs and they never get, they don't really get to, this might be the closest they get to a home run actually. Like, am I crazy, Matt? You mean like in the other 2006 matches they have? Yeah. 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 Those, those matches are, those matches are really forgettable. This was by far the best match they had against each other in 06. I think that's pretty, pretty much consensus. I don't know of another match between them because they went, they wrestled at least like two more times in the year and I don't think anyone says anything about those other two matches. They wrestle once in a cage yeah. even and it's yeah, it's not that good. They this is this is definitely the disappointment of the year, the Joe versus Danielson feud. But this match, like I, I agree with you, it's like low grade. It's like a you know, I think it's in it's in that four star, four to quarter star range to me, you know, and that's you know, you'd want it to be like in the five star range because these were like the two top legends in ROH and they promoted the match so much. And I think people were really loving Danielson's reign by this point. So it was definitely disappointing whilst, while still being a fairly great match, especially that last 10 minutes, the crowd was going nuts for that last 10 minutes. I, that's the part of the show where I could see myself because I'm standing on a chair. Cause I'm like, I'm kind of in the back <laughs> and I'm just like getting so into those final, you know, those final near falls and the reversals and Joe getting on that choke at the end, which you posted the video of, on Twitter, that is one of the biggest pops. I, I, I had forgotten that 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 pop in the and I it's, it's mentioned in Phil's review. I cut a little bit of it out for brevity, but like like that pop in the final minute when you know if this I mean this crowd I think knew the match was going long by the way they worked it. But if this crowd thought that there was no chance, I don't think this crowd thought there was no chance Joe could win because in that final minute when he puts on the choke, that is maybe a top five pop that we've heard so far. Rewatching every goddamn show. They lose their goddamn minds. And even before the, the match starts, I posted a clip of that too. The crowd do it the dueling chance. Like the, the, it's a legit, like not doing it for fun, like mixed crowd where for moments the chance actually blend together because people are picking their sides and it's a really special atmosphere at the start and at the very end. And that's one of the things that kind of made me wish 
they did do a 20 or 30 minute match because <laughs> obviously they have to kind of ramp down because it's a long match. They can't be at that level of all time. But I thought if you just hit them hard and fast with like a real balls to the wall 20 minute match, this crowd probably would have been just ape shit the entire time. Like it would have been a special atmosphere. You guys really watch Punk Joe is my always thought was that the one that wasn't 60 minutes was the best of them. Yeah, that was that was definitely by far what Trevor thought. I I still like that that second 60 minute draw slightly better, but definitely when you're talking about matches that have, you know, all that forethought and they, you know, they they plan out different points and like tell a really really well thought out story, the third match reigns above all of them. It's the one where they they really put the most effort into laying it out and calling things back and having that drama with the blood and stuff. So I, I think a lot of people in retrospect do think that that third match is the best one. I think yeah, more that- people remember the second just because of the length. But I feel like if you were like a fan at the time, there are so many, like you were saying, great callbacks in the third one. Like it really rewards if you're like a real geek for the promotion. It, like it even pays off the goddamn steamboat punk feel like they they do callbacks to that in the match i mean it's just i really like the third one of course phil you probably just prefer the third one because that's the one that has blood in it (laughs) order (laughs) but i that's the same reason i I like the wrestle war steamboat flare match the best out of their matches too yeah so i appreciate you can go long but let me see it go short no, I, th- I think yeah, there, is, there is there is definitely something to that. Like you know, like I said, I really love that um, that MJF Danielson sixty minute match. But yeah, I'd be curious to see to see them do a like a twenty minute match and see what they do with that too. Um, you know, I as far as um, the Joe vs. Punk stuff, one thing I do want to just connect that to for this show. Did do you remember Trevor that in Joe vs. Punk two there was one guy in the crowd that was like a very uh, audible Samoa Joe fan that would just be like, "Come on, Joe, let's go, Joe." There was a guy like that in this match for Danielson who was just was very very audible that kept <laughs> like yelling things for Danielson, like. Um, he, you know, he, at the end he'd be like, you, "To Joe, you had your f- chance. You couldn't get it done." Um, there's another one where uh, Joe, uh, Danielson was selling his knee, and the Danielson fan was like, "That's all right. His knee don't work neither." Like, st- like I just thought it was a fun <laughs> counterpart to the guy in the Joe Punk match. Yeah, it was like a third commentator. That guy was talking a lot, but um. Is so yeah, I, I would end Joe's run. Like, is Joe done pretty soon after this? He's in he's in ROH regularly until early 2007. He kind of has a, a farewell tour in like February of 07. And then that's pretty much it for him, except for kind of special appearances for the next, you know, many years after that, because they start, you know, uh, phasing out all the TNA contracted guys at that point. Yeah, this is the so phase what? of his career where he's kind of taking some like he's picking his spots now. He's not giving you the full Joe on every Ring of Honor show. What was the last great Joe ROH match? Um, not counting the not counting the Jay Briscoe match for the title, like way later, which I actually rewatched when Jay Briscoe died and wrote up for the Ringer and thought it was awesome. But let's not, not count that because that was obviously like you know ten years after this. But I what became- was your what was like the last like okay this was Joe at peak Joe at is great because you know by now it's you're right this is the end this is past his prime as are we right this is not apex mountain joe i'd be i'd be curious to watch um the joe morishima match again which we're going to get up to 
you know, it's in early 07. That match was definitely the last one that got the really high reviews at the time. I remember maybe not liking it as much as a lot of people did. Like, I thought it was a good match, but not, like, transcendent, like you would say. Um, but that was definitely the one that people talk about. As far as what we've watched, probably the last great Samoa Joe match, like, singles match, like, great one, at this point, Trevor, was probably Joe and Kobashi, right? Like, at by, Yeah. I think it's tough. I, I, I would say that, but I think it's tough because I think a lot of Joe's best performances since then in this timeline have been like, um, the 100th like, show. Like, yeah, yeah, like, like, like tag matches or three. Like, there are matches where he has flipped the switch. You can tell Joe's decided that night, I'm giving 100% Joe. Like, but the matches themselves, he's either been just one part of it or, like, for example, um, the Kenta Danielson Joe three way. We talked about that match where it's kind of an entertaining mess because guys get hurt, you know, and all, you know, Kenta, that's the match where Kenta gets not legit knocked out, like right near the start of the match. And he's like rattled the whole thing. Like that match is not a top tier great match, but Joe looks like every bit of as great as he ever has in that match. Like he's got his working shoes on, or like you just said, the, the six man tag, uh, the CZW match, uh, six man tag of the hundred show. Joe is like clearly like motivated to like really give us all. And he looks great. But again, is that like a great Samoa Joe match? It, no, it, it's, it's a sick, it's great. It's a great match that Samoa Joe just happens to be in performing well. Yeah. Th- those spotlight singles matches kind of vanish after Kobashi. Um, are you guys still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Yeah. 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 So I would just say, yeah, for this, for the 60 minute match, this match, I would just go over. Uh, I would say one thing I want, I would talk about this match is this match to me was like one of those matches where you, you're like, like you're watching sleight of hand magic and you know exactly how the trick is done, but you can appreciate just you're appreciating not the trick, but you're appreciating just how skilled they are at executing it. Because I thought this was a match where you can see all the little things they're doing to drag a match to 60. And it's very obvious, you know, it's not one of those matches where you go, Oh, that felt like it was 30. No, it feels like it was 60. It's not one of those matches where you go, Oh, I didn't know they were going long early. No, you know, early, but I think the choices they make are really smart. Like at the start, I loved all the Danielson, you know, the start of the whole first 10 minutes of the match is just Joe kicking the hell out of Danielson and Danielson bailing to the outside over and over again. And it's such obvious, like, we gotta throw, we gotta pad this match out, but it's done really well. And I, I could watch Joe kick the shit out of Danielson forever. And Danielson eventually, you know, gets frustrated and has a tantrum on the outside. I like that. You know, I like the mat work. And then they do that really smart thing that I've seen in other 60 minute matches where they basically like reset the match. So first, first half an hour of the match is like 10 minutes of stalling bunch of mat work and that's slowly ramping up. We're starting to get big moves. Danielson pops out the, you know, the flying head, but you think, Oh, this match is really key into high gear, but they got 30 minutes to go. And then that's only when they start focusing on Joe's knee, which was the, uh, been a story for months that Joe's knee was hurt. And it's only then that they work the knee. And what that allows them to do is basically slow the match back down again. Cause now Danielson can go back to the mat for 10 minutes and work over the knee. Cause now the knees hurt. And, that, and then and that, they build- and that chop lock to the leg. That's at, exactly at the 30 minute mark. So obviously they at least plan that part. Like we're going to, you know, kind of focus in at 30 minutes. Yeah, and th- and that's why I said earlier, like the final thirty minutes could stand their own. You know that 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 you you do not need the first thirty minutes. I enjoyed the first thirty minutes, but yeah, that is complete fluff to pad this match out to the sixty minute draw. But 
I, I and I think those final 15, 20 minutes are, you know, fantastic. And yeah, I, I, I am of the opinion that most 60 minute matches would be better if they were shorter. And I think this is no different possibly. I think on this given night with what these guys were doing, I could have edited this match down to like a 40 minute that maybe would have been better than their August match. If still not an absolute classic that, that 2004 match, but I enjoyed this for what it was. I, I enjoyed this quite a bit. This was definitely better than Punk versus Daniels. Yeah. As a 60 minute match. Um, so anyway, let me just scroll down through a million notes I wrote here that I am now going to ignore. Uh, do, 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 do. Oh, oh, one thing I also want to mention. I was disappointed. Normally I like Dave Praise next commentary, but I was disappointed when Danielson threw up the peace sign and did the Regal stretch, you know, like an obvious little tribute to, uh, Regal, which he was not doing all the time here. And Dave Praise on commentary just calls it a modified STF. And luckily MSL on commentary catches it. He, he brings it up. And then Prezak kind of redeemed himself later because I thought he did one really nice bit on commentary here where Joe goes for the muscle buster late and on the pin, Danielson grabs the ropes and Prezak actually goes out of his way to say, if you notice, because Joe's knee is so hurt, he, on the muscle buster, he nor- normally like marches it right into the middle of the ring. And on this one, he only takes like two steps because his knee is so hurt and that lets Danielson grab the ropes. And I thought that was like a really nice little thing to point out that really, um, I, I, it's those little story touches that I really enjoy seeing. So that was nice. So, um, I remember really liking a spot where, where Danielson like, uh, like cuffs Joe right in the eye. That was really nasty. And Joe had a, Joe had a real black eye at the end of the match too. Like you see Joe immediately start to like play with like the mouse that's immediately forming. Like he's realizing, fuck, he just, he just, Eye for a second. Um, but there were a couple ugly spots in this match, a couple botches from guys yeah, that you normally don't expect. Danielson had a real hard time doing leg holds on Joe. Like he kept doing them, but like they would, you know, it's funny because Danielson got a figure four on Joe after Joe got a figure four on Danielson, and that Danielson fan was like, Yours is better than his was to Danielson, but Joe's figure four was definitely better because yeah. Joe <laughs> couldn't get his leg. I mean, Danielson could not get his leg over Joe's like heel. Or his ankle. Yeah. Um, so after the match, the uh, the crowd chants for five more minutes. Joe holds up five fingers, but a barely conscious Danielson rolls to the outside, grabs his title. He teases going five more minutes. He goes back inside the ring, even shakes Joe's hand, and then immediately leaves the ring. So very standard heel move, set up rematches. As Danielson goes back to the entrance, Kenta appears. He's staring at him at the entrance ramp. He's pointing at Danielson. Danielson begs off until the Briscoes attack Kenta, at which point Homicide runs in. He attacks the Briscoes to get revenge earlier. They all they march to the ring as Danielson and Kenta disappear. Uh, Joe start, starts to walk to the back, but he sees Homicide's brawling the ring with the Briscoes, and he proceeds to get back of the ring quickly helps homicide he takes out the briscoes uh joe grabs the mic and tells homicide if anyone's going to kick homicide's ass it's going to be joe joe says when roh needed soldiers homicide soldiered when they needed men homicide was the man the only reason joe just said roh homicide's ass was that homicide saved roh's ass from those scumbags of philly Joe says homicide hates him. He hates homicide. He can't stand homicide's ass. But Joe hears that because of bullshit politics, homicide's down a soldier. He goes, well, from now on, you have one in me. Homicide snatches the mic away. He proposes that he and Joe take on the Briscoes in New York City. They shake hands, and Joe says, in New York City, he'll be proud to welcome people to Ring of Homicide. And I thought this was a good angle. And again, I think it's you can see Gabe's booking here where the last time they ran a 60-minute match, they ran um, 
it was Christopher Daniels, CM Punk. And that match, I think people were pretty disappointed that it went to a 60-minute draw and that was the end of the show. So here I feel like this is Gabe booking some insurance, being like, well, whether or not the fans are satisfied with a 60-minute draw, you know, if we have Homicide and, like, Joe Unite at the very end of the show, that's something, you know, these guys have been feuding in the company basically since near the start. That, that'll be something that sends them home happy. And I think it's a good angle. Like, it, the, the motivations make sense. They don't act like they absolutely love each other now. The idea that Joe's basically, like, paying Homicide back for how, how, how Homicide helped them out in the CZW feud, like, it all works out. It all makes sense to me. And it's also that local area booking because this is basically the NYC market and the next, you know, run of shows in that area are going to be the, the, the Glory by Honor where they have the, the debut at the Manhattan Center. So they, you know, they build up the Danielson versus Kenta match and also announce this new match that makes that card seem, you know, pretty special at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Nice little booking. I don't remember uh, Homicide versus the Briscoes. Is that good? Uh, I don't remember it being that good, but we'll find out pretty soon when we review yeah, it. Yeah, I, I, I know Bix really loves it, so we'll we'll see if we can make fun of Bix <laughs> in, in a good natured way. But I, I I think Bix might like. Didn't he say something like in the last year about like that was on scale to be like the match of the night or something at I, one point? If I not, think so. I don't remember it being at that level, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. see. I mean. Yeah. I mean, Lord knows I've, I've had, uh, I've had weird, uh, opinions on matches on the show. So, uh, we finally end the show with a shot of the ring set up for the UK shows that are the next two shows. As a scrolling graphic tells us, the time has come for ROH in the UK. So that was the show. That was Fight of the Century. Uh, Phil, what'd you think about like revisiting this all these years later? You know, you sitting down to watch a poor guy having to sit down to rewatch three hours just to do a dang podcast. What'd you think of revisiting a, a show from this far back? I thought it was fun. You know, I didn't think it was a show that had, like, anything that... I You know, I revisited a bunch of ROH. The first thing I wrote for The Ringer was, like, a when it looked like ROH was shutting down was kind of a hist... was, like, a best matches of ROH. So I watched a bunch of stuff I hadn't seen in a long time. I didn't think anything was on the level of the best stuff I watched. But it's kind of fun to, to check out a show from this period. I, I mean, clearly from my review in 2006... I had been uh, stepped away a little from 2006 ROH. Um, and so I didn't have as many like sense memories as I would have had if we, if I had uh, hooked up with you guys, you know, for shows in 2005. Uh, but it was yeah. fun. I, you know, I, I, you know, I, got, I like, there was just some real moments where I was like, you know, guys like Jack Evans and, and Jimmy Rave, where it's like I hadn't really thought about those guys in a while and really enjoyed watching them at their peak. You know, Jimmy Rave and Russell, but he was in doing stuff. Uh, so, yeah, it was fun. It was good. I was glad I did it. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, and, like and I, I think you need okay. a project in a lot of ways to go back for some a reason to watch some of this stuff. I would need a project. This was a yeah. good project. I mean, yeah, that that's basically, basically what Matt and I do, and basically it feels like, 50% of middle-aged fans is if we just do projects so we have excuses to rewatch the wrestling we watched when we were younger. But, uh, Matt, what do you think about this? I think that, um, you know, maybe the undercard was maybe mildly, like, less memorable than average. Um, but still, you know, this was such a solid era that everything was still, you know, fine. And I really, really did like that Richards and Kenta match, uh, probably the most of any of us. And so like that really boosted the show for me. And then I still really liked the main event. You know, it's like I said, not that top tier match, but still, you know, two great wrestlers having a 60 minute match. So I think all in all, I, I think this was still a good show. You know, not, not the best show we've, we've watched recently, but a good one. 
Yeah, I was thinking when I was thinking about my thoughts on the show, I was thinking of uh, both things that Phil and uh, you, Matt, said. I, like, I, I was thinking about, like, the context really influences how much you enjoy something. Like like Phil was saying, you know, how at different points he likes stuff more than he thought because, hey, he's just dropping in and visiting guys he maybe he hasn't seen in this era for a while. And, and yeah, and like – what you want from a promotion when you watch every show, you know, like in a short span of time or in our case, a medium span of time, I guess, is different than when you just drop in. Like there are matches, there, there are certain matches in life, like kinds of matches where if I see it like once a year, I'll love it. If I see it once a month, I'll probably like grow to get sick of it or hate it. And like I was thinking of what you were thinking, saying that earlier about how like expectations like – I came away like the Joe Danielson match was better than I remembered it. So I was pretty happy about ending the show with that. And the, the Kenta Richards match, I'm hard on it probably because I remembered it being better than it was. So, you know, my real thoughts, if I rewatch these matches again, like five months from now might, might be different, but the show I saw in the time of my life, I saw it. I, uh, well, that was a pretty good show. I agree that there was nothing here. That's going to be like a match of the year list, but I think it's a very good 60-minute match. Well, we will see worse 60-minute matches, and we have seen worse 60-minute matches on this show. Um, yeah, and, and a decent undercard. So, yeah, that was that was Fight of the Century. So now, Phil, we end with the point. 60-minute matches did ROH run after this. I'm trying well, to remember. As Danielson said in the book, he is about they're, – they're, next week they're going to – in the timeline, they're doing the Phil, the UK double shot. Then the week after, they do back-to-back nights. He goes to a 60-minute draw with Nigel McGinnis, which he does not think highly – if you think he snubs this match, he really does not think highly of that match. And then the very next night, he does the 60-minute with Colt Cabana, and that's the match where he blows out his shoulder like in the first couple of minutes, and he just guts through it. And isn't there a 60-minute match like in maybe like 2015 between – or 2016 between between Jay Lethal and Roderick Strong, am I remembering that correctly? And isn't there also one with like Aries and Tyler Black? You know, yeah, I think Ooh. so. And there might even be a tag team one at some point. Yikes. Yeah, good luck yeah, with so- Aries, Tyler Black, and three <laughs> well, years. We're never going to make it to that. If we ever get to that, geez. <laughs> But Phil, um, you know, I plugged some stuff up top, but what do you, I mean, I, I thought, I thought you had, I had sorted out your plugs, but I did not realize you were working. I thought the last year, I thought you were working on a Dustin Rhodes book that you're working on AEW book. You're, you're possibly got something you're working for GQ. I mean, Jesus, what, what do you have to I've plug, man? You've got for so GQ. much going. GQ has not published anything I've written for them yet. So who knows? <laughs> I have wrote. But, but uh, I guess technically, uh, I, I did have a thing for GQ, which may come out or may not come out. And, uh, and you know, I, the Ringer the Ringer column is is defunct, sadly. I'm doing that on Patreon, doing some stuff with um, – uh, so that you can – if you check my Twitter, I still put that column out every week even though it's not on a, as big a, uh, a, big, uh, platform in, in, on Patreon, but you can read it for free. Um, yeah, and working on a couple, we're still working on a Dustin Rhodes book. That's, that's, you know, that'll come out at some point. And then we're doing that, that AWROH, AWA the Blade thing. Uh, AWA the Blade thing, I, I'm hoping will come out, you know, and then, you know, fall. We're, I'm, I'm pretty close to done with all the writing for that. And the, the art is, the art and the interviews, I'm still, uh, I'm still lining up. I've got some interviews this week, hopefully with the Bunny and Britt Baker. Get some quotes from them, and uh, yeah, you know, and I and theoretically, 
Uh, I should, you know, I, ha- I have not, uh, I'm not fired from the ringer. They're just not paying anybody to write about wrestling right now. So maybe oh, at some point they will pay me again to write about wrestling. Uh, so keep your eyes peeled. But if you can follow me on Twitter, Blue Sky and I guess Threads, and I will have where, what I'm up to. Uh, yeah. that. I was going to say, trust me, I, I relate to, uh, being in another realm with a wrestling website, not knowing if you're still employed with them or not. So, um, so, so if you want to get in contact with us at through the years, as always, through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H for through, at Trevor Dame on Twitter, at Mayor MGF on Twitter. Next time on the show, we'll be covering one of the huge ones. That's Unified. That's the show with the, uh, the Brian Danielson, Nigel against title unification match. It's the first three of honor show in the UK. It's the one with all the big concussion worries that sparked a bunch of discussions. And, uh, yeah, it's Brian Danielson, Nigel against wrestling in the UK for a company's first show in the UK. I, I don't think we'll ever see that again. Trevor's, but, uh, Trevor's underselling how excited he is for this one. Yeah, I, I, I am. I, I will be pumped. And again, we might have a guest for that one that I'm really pumped from that I might just have some opening thoughts. And yeah, it, it should be a fun time. And again, thank you so much, Phil, for doing the show. For people like we talked about this with the Death LA Driver stuff when Dean died. But um, yeah, the the a big reason people like me got into Ring of Honor and like had any interest in finding out this world of like U.S. indie wrestling and foreign wrestling was because of the Death Valley Driver and like Phil and Dean and everyone else there. So it was, it, it was a real kick to have you on the show. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'll, 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 uh, I'll put my, I'll put a pin in a show late of a later date and I'll come back and do another show with you guys. I had fun doing this. It was, I mean, the idea of, the idea of I'm rewatching an entire Ring of Honor show from, from some d- dated history. I got such a kick of that is just such a silly concept. So I, I dug it. I mean, <laughs> I'll, I'll come back if you guys allow yeah. me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. This, and, this was so much fun. A lot of fun. Yeah, some people would devote say they would devote way too much of their of their thirties to doing this, but uh, yeah, absolutely. So thank you everyone for listening. Until next time, have a good time. Have a great time.